0: everybody welcome to uh, the business brew with Bill Brewster and my guest Dan McMurtry Dan on a fresh off of a big week that I look forward to talking to him about as a reminder this is not financial advice investment advice anything that you hear here is the opinions of two people do your own due diligence and everything in between I am not a fiduciary Dan's not your fiduciary get your own advisor so with that out of the way Dan how you doing
1: I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to uh, to chat. Uh, we do this every once in a while, so it's why not record it and share it with people.
0: That's sort of how I felt. It's been a pleasure getting to know you this year. So I guess we got to talk about your big news, man. Tell everybody what happened.
1: We announced um, we got uh, we signed a C deal with Greenlight Masters, which is uh, Greenlight Capital's internal kind of fund of funds vehicle. It's run by Mitch Golden, and we've been talking to them since. Early 2017, I got introduced to them by another manager that's kind of a you know in that 25 to 35 year old range. I'd share his name, but he's obsessively private person. Believe it or not, I do know people who are not on Twitter. (laughs) I don't believe it. And so he introduced me to them, and and we started chatting. I think February 2017, and we've been talking to them every you know probably month or two since. And then you know earlier this year, they kind of said, "Hey, we'd be interested in doing something." and we were able to kind of work out a a really good partnership, we think, and and more importantly, we really love the team over there. We think they're great guys, they're thoughtful, they're helpful, they really took the time to understand what we're doing, what we wanna build. And, you know, it's just awesome. And, and, you know, on a personal note for my business partner, Alex and I, I mean, we grew up reading about, for our particular age vintage, it was kind of David Einhorn, Dan Loeb, and Bill Ackman were the three guys that was, you know, Batman, Superman, and Green Lantern. And, you know, so it's really surreal for me, you know, getting to meet some of those people and work with them. And I'm on cloud nine. And at the same time, I'm, of course, insanely neurotic about not messing it up. So, but I think, you know, we are six years in, we had some nice overnight success that only took six years. And, you know, I think we've got enough experience, uh, which is to say, we've made enough mistakes already to where we, we know what we're doing. And, you know, we 're excited and and more importantly, I think it's great that we have partners that we like and we can work with and I just think it's a, a great relationship and we could not be more pleased
0: that's awesome man i uh i'm super fortunate to have gotten to know you. I think Twitter is an amazing place i don 't know if it was i think that the first thing that I pinged you about was something in the weed space about drying i think was I liked a part of the value chain I think it was licensing. And I didn't know who the heck you were, right? You were still Super Mugatu at the time. And we just started to chat. And it's been fun to build a friendship with you. It's been a hell of a year to go through speaking with you over time. And I'd like to get into that. But first, I got to start. What was it like running Super (laughs) Mugatu?
1: Fun. I think fun. I mean, it changed over time. I mean, I first interacted with Twitter because I, when I was in college at Notre Dame, I was, I would harass smaller hedge fund managers to let me intern for them for free. I was just like, let me do something. I want to get, put me in the game coach. And I'm sure some of the work I would do was valuable and a lot of it wasn't. And one of those guys uh, said, Hey, you got to get on this Twitter thing. And I didn't really get it at first. because I went on and it was all kind of day traders and charts that I could call. And I, and, and it is hard to penetrate that if you've never been on it before. And also, finance sort of was very different back then.
0: So what was it like? Like, In in what way was it different? Because I've only been there for maybe three years
1: or so. I mean, back in 09, 10, 11, somewhere like that, and I had a different handle back then. I think it was just under my own name, but it was a lot more like daily trading ideas, you know, the charts here, the set of whatever. It, It wasn't as much... There weren't really long, these long-form discussions about fundamentals. There wasn't as much of a community. There was a community of like these day traders that had migrated over from other chat platforms that have existed since computers existed. And it was a little bit more like a message board. And then over time, it slowly started morphing into more of a community as people started to put stuff out there. And really, what happened between 2015, I think, and about 2018 is the online and offline world started to sync. And so people started to meet in real life because of Twitter, or you started to realize that, you know, a third of people at Communicopia covering Liberty were all on Twitter or, or things like that, right? And and also surprisingly high profile people started to go on as there started to be higher quality content, which caused more content to come on the platform. And you had one of those nice little feedback loop happen- happened. and. Um, and so it changed. And so I initially, when I moved to New York, I was going and I was doing open mics and doing stand up. And I really just started using the, the Mugatu handle as a way to test stand up comedy jokes. And because I also would tweet sometimes about stocks and things, I had this nice little niche where I could interact with pretty much whoever I wanted, but it wasn't serious. It was generally just, you know, either talking trash in a relatively lighthearted way or, Making jokes and and I, but I could still have those stock conversations. And early on, I kind of picked up that if you you kind of when you're going online, you almost need to create a character for yourself. And so I explicitly created a character, and I chose Mugatu because my old boss. I would go in and rant after researching a company about you know the receivables have all these problems and this 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 this, and he'd be like, "You sound like that guy from that Zoolander movie who's like losing his mind." And so I said, well, this is great because I, I advise people on this still when they're, when they're going to go on an open platform like this because there's a game on it. And if, if you just go on and assume it's like real life, people say things on there they would never say in real life, right? So if you don't create some sort of psychological tool to sort of buffer yourself from it, it's very easy for you to accidentally mouth off and put something that you would never want on the record out there. But if you create, you know, it's very nice to wear a mask and just also have that kind of comedy character where it's kind of absurd for somebody to get really angry at a will ferrell account
0: yeah that's fair right yeah
1: it's just and so it was this nice like there's like a logical fallacy it's about making an absurd statement and then retreating to a rational statement and pretending they're the same but it, you know you could kind of do that all day i think it's martin bailey or something like that is the name of the fallacy but yeah, we, so I realized like, okay, I'm going to have this character. I'm going to play a character. There's going to be kind of a tight thing for it. And then over time, I started to meet more and more people. And, and we didn't know a lot of people. And so I went to all the happy hours. I helped set up a bunch of happy hours. Me and a bunch of these anonymous accounts that were starting to build followings. We would say, hey, this bar, this time, anybody come. And 30, 40 people would show up and we'd meet all those people and we'd stay in touch and then group chats start and then email threads start and you find out you and somebody else are obsessed with one company. And so you start swapping notes and then they would introduce you to somebody else who is a real person at a real fund and, and you start talking with them. And all of a sudden that started expanding in kind of a fractal way. And then at a certain point, it was like, one, Twitter had gotten to a point where those types of conversations, which I really think began offline, people meet online, then meet offline from online. Then they have a real conversation. Then that moves back online. That is, I think, the loop that drove the quality of content on Twitter to go up over time, along with people like Patrick O'Shaughnessy and others starting to launch more like formalized businesses around that. And then that started to loop. And so at a certain point there, I had met hundreds and hundreds, if not a few thousand people, and I had spoken to these people, and you know, people had my name and. My email and, and and if anybody really wanted to find out who I was, it really wasn't that hard. And and people did try to dox me several times and it was like surprise, I'm a nobody. So it doesn't matter. Like I know a couple of people like were so disappointed when they found out was, yeah. that I was the guy behind that account. Right. They're like, Oh there was one guy who like was like, Man, I really thought you'd be like a big deal. So who oh, are you? that's right. Like, right. Well, I, like I chose to take it as a compliment, but So, yeah. So, I mean, after time, I just said, like, the anonymous thing doesn't really make sense. It does make sense for a lot of people. And I think the anonymous part is really important because people can speak clearly. And I think the only reason, like with a lot of businesses, a prior inefficient state of things is what was necessary to create the current version of things. And I think that is the case for Finance Twitter is, I don't think the current version of Finance Twitter would have ever existed if it weren't for the merry band of trash talking. Anonymous accounts because that formed this core hub. And then over time, you know, the non anonymous people started coming in. But back five, six, seven years ago, which is you know, eons ago in internet time, there were very few, I would say, real name people who were also publishing serious research. Like, and now you're seeing it really start to push with all these sub stacks and S1 breakdowns and time for a thread with the three little finger points. And, you know, so I, I feel like I, you know, and there are people that were all this before me, but I feel like I was kind of one of the seminal members there. And there's probably 25, 30 accounts that are, that go back to that vintage, but it's also changed. And some of those accounts that were used to be a big part of the community have faded. So there's some people like, I think among hardcore Twitter people, there are some people who like, Aren't considered big accounts that we would all say no. He's a real one. So it's just like any other social group.
0: Yeah. Well, you sort of have. I I would actually think if you're that guy that's not big, but the real big ones respect you. That's like the real coveted position in a weird way. Yes. Absolutely. It's like the OG of the fin twit, right? Like when you get respect by the people that other people respect. That's more important, I think. Absolutely. That's interesting. The, the inefficient thing that you had alluded to, I feel that a little bit in whatever the hell I'm doing, like, I don't even know what I'm doing to be perfectly honest. Right. But what I do know is I have a reasonably good way of connecting with people in finance and outside. And there's something about me in finance entertainment that people seem to like, and I really enjoy doing. And if I can do stuff like this and deliver this to the world and figure out how to monetize it, I really don't want to run money. Like for real? I mean, I'm happy running my own.
1: I think it's because you have the same voice as the guy from Office Space. Yeah,
0: well, it could be. It could be. I would yeah. sort of have a similar attitude. I need to make sure it doesn't get me in trouble, though.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think that's an interesting topic because I think that I've said this on a, on a few things, but earlier in my career, when it, like 2016, things were really not going well. They could have gone worse, but I was having a really hard time, and I went to a mentor of mine, and he. He gave me several pieces of advice that were really valuable. But one of them, he said to me, and this is just, there are things people say, and you hear them, and you're like, yeah, that's right. But you don't really understand how important that thing is. And so many important things in life, in business investing, seem mundane when you hear them. And then years later, you're like, oh my God, that was the stuff. And what he said to me was, he said, look, everything successful I've ever been involved with, and this guy has been a fabulous venture investor and public investor and manager of businesses. He said, everything I've ever been involved with, it worked. It went not even remotely close to how we thought it was going to go. It had to pivot 10 or 20 times and we had to move directionally in the right way to continue to succeed and survive. But he's like, I don't think we've ever, if anything it's been like a hundred bagger or something like that, we've never had something go anything remotely the way the original pitch deck looked. And so his advice was like, don't worry about the end states so much, worry about what you can actually control and do right now. And yeah, work the process. And and there's something I think in this modern ecosystem of, of how these tech communities work where you can kind of feel it. You know what I'm saying? You can kind of feel like, okay, something's happening here. We're building an audience, people are paying attention. This is yielding returns that are just not financial yet. And I think a lot of wonderful businesses have been built that way where you're not yet seeing it maybe on an income statement, but you're seeing the function that should produce income statement metrics over time getting built out. And I, and I think financial media has been done so poorly for so long. I don't know that it's ever really been done well, that there's a huge opportunity for people to do things now in this community. And the appetites there and the appetite's global is also the other thing and the costs are low i mean we can sit here on our laptops and do nothing have a chat right? and, yeah yeah
0: yeah there's no startup costs at all do you mind going into what wasn't going well if you're comfortable sure. with it
1: yeah yeah so we we were going to launch our fund in 2015 in august and we had been kind of managing some friends and former bosses money and we had done really well with it honestly too well because the market had been strong and so we there was definitely some confusing bull market for brains going on and so we said we're going to launch a fund and you know a bunch of people who we had known for a long time said you know we'll commit i'll give you 250k 500k million something like that so we thought we had 15 million committed and then in the week before we're supposed to launch just people stopped responding emails and what happened there was basically one person decided not to invest because somebody told them, hey, emerging managers almost never work out. Starting at subscale is a bad idea, all this other stuff. Absolutely good advice. And I wish I had you know, known and understood that at 21 or two, like 22. And then once somebody heard that somebody else was passing, everybody else dominated. And so we started with 3 million. And so that delayed our launch a little bit. And we started August 2015. And we're at 3 million instead of 15. And then we start investing up and then the market collapses because China was gonna blow the world up at that point. If people remember.
0: Yeah, you're talking December 2015. And so we draw down Yeah, that was a crazy time, at least for certain names, right? I don't know the whole market, but yeah.
1: It was very volatile. Yeah. And we were kind of on tilt when we came out of the gate because of how the fundraising environment had gone. And so we drew down like fifteen percent and it was brutal because the longs went down and as the longs were going down, we were like, Oh, we haven't really put on a lot of short exposure yet. So we shorted. And then everything went vertical, and so we got hit on both sides, and just nothing was working. And, and I think, it, and it was like, in retrospect, a lot of classic analyst to PM type things where we confused running basically PA money with a few positions with understanding how to structure a book and manage risk and things like that. So we had to go back to the drawing board and figure out how to how to structure a portfolio better. But you know, after that, it was like, okay, should we even keep doing this? How the hell are we going to raise money? All that other stuff. And it was just you know it had blown up in our face in four months, right? And you know my business partner Alex had left City, uh, working in investment banking, to do this with me, and I would left no job, and that felt really bad.
0: Yeah, and you're in New York, right? At yeah, the time? actually, we
1: just moved up to New York. Yeah, yeah. So, so you I got a lot of York. fixed
0: cost in your life.
1: Right. I mean, at that point, it was like a we work in a apartment still. Got yeah, rent. Still, it was, and that wasn't trivial to us at the time. And so it was just kind of like everything went wrong at the same time and you know you can't raise the money the longs go bad the shorts go bad people aren't all these people that were like i had people who would call me every day to talk about stocks who all of a sudden like felt bad that they bailed because somebody else bailed and then they like were awkward about it and then wouldn't talk about it and i and so just i felt isolated and then you start just like self-sabotaging almost in a way where you just go into this doom loop in your head and it's really, really bad. And I was like just having trouble getting out of it. And so I took like a week and got away from everything and went to talk to some people. And I was just like, this is a nightmare, like basically blown up and- didn't really blow Yeah, up
0: no, I understand what you're saying.
1: Yeah. Right. And I was like, this is like, that was just terrible. Right. And so I went to several people and the nice thing is I, I was able to go to some people and they were like, dude, you're 22. <laughs> yeah, you did something in ballsy- right. You did something ballsy. And they're like, how much money did you lose? And I'm like, Hex, "You know, it yeah. was like, it was like 450 grand or something. It's not nothing. And I don't remember exactly. And it's not nothing, but they're like, how much money have you made for those people historically? And I'm like, well, more than that. And they're like, okay, well, you don't have to feel that bad. I would fix it if I were you. You don't have to feel that bad. Like it's not, you didn't, put you're not putting anybody in the poorhouse, are you? And I'm like, no. And they're like, but well, you're not going to quit, are you? And I was like, well, I'm thinking about it. And they're like, why are you going to quit? You're 22. Like, if you can't get better at 22, you have much bigger problems. And I, yeah, I kind of got some pats on the back from a few people and just said, All right, like, we see what you just went through. That was a nightmare. Uh, pick yourself back up. And that really led to a huge pivot and just kind of worldview and how I, how I treated people and how I thought about investing. And it kind of caused me to move away from a purist value philosophy because I realized there were just practical constraints that were. That existed. That you know, you have to manage. Like Bill Ackman talked about return on brain damage. But I had had five or six different things go wrong at the same time, and I felt that much stress. And I realized, you know, it's like all these fables you hear about value investing. It was like I was unable to make basic decisions for you know a couple weeks, and I was like, I never want to feel like that again because I'm going to miss fat pitches because I'm just shell shocked. There's things exploding everywhere.
0: Did you feel like there were things that happened? So I assume that you were in the deeper value sort of strategy mentality at the time.
1: Yeah. So there were a couple things we did wrong. One, a little more deeper value. We had invested one of the worst investments I ever made. And some, some investments that don't work, you go back and you go, you know, I'd make that bet again. It was a good bet didn't work out, but ex-ante, it was a good bet. But we had invested in this company called Horsehead Holdings. that was like a popular value name, right? We later shorted it to zero uh, in some size. You You made
0: money on the downside.
1: We later got our money back on that one. But I think because I'm really obsessed, and we're going to probably talk about this. I'm really obsessed with understanding how like the value school of thought can poison your psychology, because there's nothing wrong with value. It's a great framework. Everybody needs it. It's the basic mathematics of business but it can also become this psychological safety blanket that can provide a feeling of comfort that can suffocate you. And we were kind of obsessed with being smarter than other people, I think. Like we wanted to be clever. We wanted the really complicated thesis where we had to read 2000 pages of documents because nobody else is gonna read the documents. And what I realized over time is those things traded a discount because that reading cost is essentially a diligence cost. And then in the event where you're wrong, you can't get out. So there's there's it's a very different return profile when you go into those weird special situations, especially hard asset special situations. And, and and we were trying to it was just trick shot stuff. Like we were trying to justify why people were wrong to not invest with us. So we overcomplicated it. We should have just gone really vanilla and tried to hit singles and doubles, but we wanted to be monsters. So we overcomplicated it, we made it harder than it needed to be. And in retrospect, it was almost like a self-sabotaging or ego thing. And, I'm really paranoid about doing that now. And I see some theses people post I'm like, that is a fabulous thesis, incredible research. I'll never touch it. (laughs) Never, never touch that.
0: On some of those names, do you think you need like a really good capital allocator to bail you out? I don't want to cut you off and I'm sure people are pissed off that I did, but like, if it takes that much research to get your head around, it seems to me that you need a guy that knows how to collapse the discount.
1: Yeah. The agency costs are huge. I mean, all of a sudden you have all these problems. One, who is your capital? Are they going to allow you to ride that out? Two, what is the incentives of a person there? And one of the things I think you get in trouble with, with smaller value stuff is you have management teams that are, first of all, they're not rock stars. They're not like the high demand people. I do think there's a signal when you get a rock star who goes into an absolute trash fire. I really disagree with Buffett on the reputation of business for his reputation of management thing. I think that's a huge signal. I understand what he Buffett speaks to his median audience participant, which is generally a retail investor. And what he says is very advisable for them, but it's not advice for professionals. Mm -hmm. And I think there's huge signal when you get a rock star going into a trash fire, because there's usually a really good reason they're not dumb people. But I think you have to really understand the incentives there, because if you have like a C minus manager who's been abandoned by the markets, why are they gonna go through this very difficult process and then hand anonymous shareholders all this money when they could carve out a nice 10, 20, 30, 50 million for themselves by working with private equity or creditors or something else in a way that they'll never be called on practically. And, and actually with that horse head situation, if you go back and reverse the course of events, it seems pretty clear that management was, it was mathematically impossible. They wouldn't default at the time when they spoke to investors. And you know, and I don't even know that that was deliberate on their part. They might've just not been competent. but. The incentives get really nasty in these small things. So if you have somebody comes in who's aligned, who has skin in the game, who's but that alignment factor, you got to really, really be sure. And I've just seen so many good businesses where even like you're right, like, okay, there's a value we can unlock, and you think the assets worth three X where it's trading. So often when I see that happens, it does get bought out or something, but it's at an 80% premium. So you you took all of this nightmare risk of all of that going wrong, plus the illiquidity, plus all of that, and then you're getting a heavily haircutted premium because the management team is going to stay in place and get a huge comp package. So we had a company we had a position in, actually yesterday it got acquired called Eurobant, it's a drug development company, and they decided to sell the company immediately prior to a major data readout and a trial and a drug approval. And I haven't seen what management's compensation will look like at the acquirer, but I would love to. I don't have any view on what it is, but I, I have a feeling.
0: You have a view. We just don't need to say what your view is.
1: <laughs> I just have a yeah. feeling that there might be something interesting yeah. in there.
0: I don't know. One of the things that I really changed on was when I came in to sort of the investment game, for lack of a better term, like I'm self-taught and the uh, value ethos sort of I, to your point, like being smarter than everybody else was the real like, thing that I wanted. I bought into that mentality. I was fortunate enough to – Mario Gabelli is the reason that I do what I do. I met him at Berkshire, and I asked him if I could buy him a beer, and he sat down with me for like two hours, and I got really interested in how he thinks and why he thinks the way. And I think his value plus a catalyst is very, very important if you're going to play especially that deep value game. And I just, I can't get down with these buyback stories that aren't giving you like true cash out. One of the reasons I like curate is the cash that's coming back to you. And a lot of these just like kind of orphaned assets, I look at the management incentives and even if it's really cheap, I'm just not into that game anymore.
1: There's definitely ways to do it. There are people that make money. There are people who are wired for it. Your investment style needs to be synced up with what your personality is. And One of the struggles you have, right, is your conception of who you are as an investor will almost for sure be outed as false as you have more market experience. And the question is, can you adapt your investment style to who you actually are? Which means you need to have some level of accurate self-perception and self-knowledge and two, you have to be willing to change. And often what happens is the things you want to be good at are not what you end up being good at. And the other thing that can happen is it may turn out that you're good at things that you find distasteful. So for example, I know a few guys who started out as like Ben Graham value style guys who found out they're for whatever reason freakishly good commodity traders, freakishly good. And yet they're mostly using technicals and a few other like things that people would consider voodoo. And I watched like one of them, he was like struggling internally because he was making so much more money on what he considered to be hunting and gambling than he was on his intellectually valid uh, value investing research. And eventually, I think his wife was the reason he gave up the value thing and decided to do commodities full time because his wife was just like, you know, I like it when we can go to Costa Rica for a month. <laughs> yeah. I don't like it when you're screaming about a steel mill.
0: <laughs> right? Yeah. That wife risk mitigation has been.
1: Right. She was like, do you want to yell about a steel mill in front of your children or do you want to hang out on the beach? And he was like, I like the beach. You know, so you've got to you got to figure out who you are, and you got to be flexible. and for, And I found it for for me, everybody. I think the other thing is you have traumas that you know. It's almost like therapy. Like traumas come out through your investing, and you can usually trace people's investing styles back to either just a, some sort of personality makeup or or traumas they've had in the past, like a lot of people who are value oriented historically, like when you ask them about like their childhood, they'd be like, well, my grandfather grew up in the depression and that's the beginning of the story. And that tells you everything. And there's like, a lot of people will give you, what well, me and my sister are called trigger phrases where they give you this line and you're like, ah, that's it. That's the character. And for me, my like, I try to spend a lot of time and I journal a lot and we'll talk about that in a second, I'm sure, but I have to figure out what are, what are my traumas and where are my biases and mine is, when you start to have not one or two points of stress, but when you start to have five or 10 or 15 points of stress simultaneously, I know that my decision making quality, my analysis quality, my overall productivity is gonna decline. And so, even though, let's say I have two stocks and one is, I think, a 15% return because it's a higher quality business, but it's not as cheap, and I have another that I think is a 30% return, but it's gonna be really hairy, I might have one of those hairier businesses, but I know that if I have 10, there's gonna be a week where stuff's going on, and I'm useless. And then I'm going to miss when that higher quality business drops down. And now that thing's a 40% return, right? And I just know, and some of that is selective memory, of course. But the question is, what parts of the process? So you have to look at two things. One is, what is your selective memory telling you versus your actual record, which is why it's important to journal thoughts and your trades and all that. And the second is, what do you actually act on? And people mess this up sometimes because they look only at selective memory. And they don't look at what are you actually going to act on. And for me, I found I'm much more willing to buy slightly higher quality businesses. And and ultimately, I'm very comfortable in competitively oriented theses, where if I just know, okay, Andre the Giant is going to fight a guy who's three feet tall. I'm super comfortable betting on Andre the Giant at any point in the round, no matter how people think the fight's going. Unless I think there's a fix.
0: what if people think the fight is going too well, which is to say, are you willing to stretch now on valuation? If you're really convinced like Andre, the giant's going to beat this guy to a pulp. Like I'm still betting it.
1: I still have not developed the ability to buy some of these sales, multiple companies. And I know it be a good thing. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you where I'm at on it. I think one evaluations last in my process First, I really want to understand what are the competitive dynamics and the feedback loops for the customer within the company the culture of the company capital sources and the reason i care about culture is adaptability of the company and that's why i think a lot of these companies these tech companies everybody goes well they're really overvalued i'm like yes but also during this year those companies cultures were built to be very adaptive to change because like what does facebook do every day facebook has teams of data science people tweaking very subtle things that you'd never notice to optimize the site. So all of a sudden, when data goes crazy, they already have hundreds of people whose only job is to adapt to new data. Versus if you go to, I don't know, a company that runs like
0: Sawmill or something, whatever.
1: Well, yeah, whatever. Yeah, whatever. They haven't had to change in 100 years. It's a very different factor there. And so I want to understand all of that stuff. And then at the end, I want to look at not just the valuations but also the price implied expectations. I think Mavis and stuff is fantastic. and And then from there, you can kind of see. And I learned a lot from studying Bill Miller on this. Like, I think one of the things that Bill understands, Bill gets like a, I feel like people, Bill does not get enough respect. Dude, he's a beast. I love him. I think he had like one bad year. And other than that, he's like a monster. because he blew up he, once
0: and people shit all over that. But I mean, whatever.
1: Who hasn't that produces monster returns? I don't
0: know, man. He's one of the most creative investors I've ever studied. I love him.
1: And, and the other thing with him is like i like to look at investors over time every like five years like what have they, they have new tricks and bill has new tricks every five years but one of these bill understands is you can be a contrarian in the sense that if somebody thinks something's good but it's actually amazing that's as valuable as thinking something's bad when people think something's good but the difference is and this is something i think this is a return type that i think bill captures is there's an issue of the market of there's information that exists There's information diffusion, how does that information go from existing somewhere to investors? And that's a big reason why these special situation value things are so difficult is the cost of information diffusion is insanely high. But when people already like the stock and are already following it, they're already predisposed to be bullish. And when you have something that comes out where people go, I don't own enough of that. Wow, that was amazing. The incremental buying that happens is crazy. And these valuations can sustain a lot longer. Now, then there's obvious case of things can be grossly overvalued, but I don't want to begin with thinking is this or is this not overvalued. I want to get a sense of where value could be, and I also want to detach myself a little bit from. Let's say there's a gold mine, right? This is a terrible example. Never think about this for for gold mine, but let's say there's a gold mine, and for whatever reason, it's not a it's not a vein of gold. There's an area of land, and there's six inches of dirt, and bond. Below that, there is solid gold down for a mile, just a huge cube. How much is that worth versus a normal mine with veins and, and gold in the dirt, right? Really, really different. You can't use conventional gold mining logic there because all you got to do is scrape some dirt off and then you just start picking up chunks of gold. So I really want to understand like, what is it we're actually dealing with? Is it unique? If it's, And if it's not unique, and if it's anywhere in this area where I just can't really tell, on to the next one, don't worry about it. But I'm looking for something I think is really, really unique. And then I'm trying to think what I'm really interested in alongside is something I think is super unique, super competitively dominant, and at a kind of fair valuation. I'm not really looking for six times earnings, but if I can find a 15 times or 20 times earnings thing that's growing it. What's interesting is there's SaaS companies at 20 times, 30 times sales that are growing 40% a year. But well, there's other businesses at 15 times earnings that are growing at 30% a year. And I'm like, I don't understand that. That's sales 15 times earnings versus 30 times sales. One's growing 30%, one's going 40%. And the margins in some cases aren't actually that different. Yeah.
0: Now you might be talking to Elliot Turner's Dropbox thesis without outing him on that, but I do think he would argue the same.
1: This comes back to my like kind of points of worry about value is I think any framework or mental model that you have can become an excuse to stop thinking or to decide that the problem is unsolvable.
0: Dude, I couldn't agree more.
1: So we call it convergent versus iterative thinking. So convergent thinking is, you know, XYZ are true, thus the probable conclusion is something, and therefore that's the outcome. And iterative thinking is okay, these are the three reasons that the following should be true. What could cause that to not be true? Or under what circumstances would that not be true? And what you're really looking for is something where, so then you have like you know, at least three variables you're monitoring. And then you can figure out in certain cases, that's where things are mispriced. Seemingly subtle changes or environmental changes can happen and you can have really nonlinear impacts on outcomes. And I think there's still a tremendous amount of outperformance to be to be driven there. But usually those things are maybe not financial costs that people are missing, but there's there's usually something that's an agency cost or a social cost or political issue or something like that that causes those things to be inefficient. So the way we think about it is we think the market's efficient, but and there are quantitative inefficiencies, but the quantitative inefficiencies are always driven by some sort of non-quantifiable cost. It's a real cost, but it's not necessarily a financial cost. It might be a career risk cost. It might be something like that. And so we try to identify exactly what are those things what causes this stock to go from something no one can own to something people cannot not own right and that's our framework because you need to take your theoretical analysis and then create a practical bridge to the market if you want to survive or at least that's what i have to do and i think a lot of people find making a compromise like that of saying okay i need to do more analysis i need to actually understand the trading dynamic i need to understand who's in it, why, who owns it, who can't own it, why can't they own it, all of that. I think people feel that that's a compromise on their value, beliefs, their dogma. And my pushback on that is I'm like, okay, it's a compromise, but like how big of a compromise is it? What of your set of names you wanna trade are you actually saying like, like, is there something you're really missing out on here? And I think the answer is no. I think so often we're afraid. I, I was raised Catholic. And so, you know, there's always this fear that you're going to stray too far from God and you won't be able to find your way back to the church. And I, you know, I know where the church is. I've been yelled at by enough priests in my life. I went to Notre Dame, right? I can get back to the church. I'm really not worried about the glorious return of deep value in me being unable to figure out how to go do balance sheet analysis. I'm really confident.
0: <laughs> you know how to, you got that one.
1: <laughs> I have the scars to prove I can do that. But, but you've got to survive till then. And, but you can often find these shortcuts, like you were talking about Givelli value plus a catalyst. 100% go buy some deep value if you know there's an absolute stud management team in there that's going to make it happen and is aligned and has a mandate and good compensation, then 100%. But then the other question is, what's in your book? You've always got to think about you know there's a difference between having one of one type of theses and having 10. One 20 percent position is very different than five, 20 percent positions. And people make huge jumps in logic all the time in investing. And it's what I watch all the time when I'm talking to people or listening to people or reading things, is these, these jumps that you don't notice. That's the same stuff that I love about stand-up comedy. My, one of my favorite investing books is this book called "What Are You Laughing at by Dan O'Connor?" And it's about kind of science of writing jokes and telling jokes in the context of how jokes are received. And one of the things he just hammers on repeatedly is most of thinking people do is subconscious and you jump these massive distances in, in reason. And most of what a joke is, is I'm going to provide you two or three pieces of information. And you're going to fill in the rest because of how I look, because of what's going on today, because of my tone, because of your knowledge of me and my background, because of your background. And then the punchline is, I'm going to provide a piece of information that invalidates all of that and makes your brain go, oh, ha ha, i pattern matched hmm. wrong. Huh. That's mostly what a joke is. And so when you read and understand comedy, you actually can start to really see like, oh, holy shit, this like, billionaire investor just made this like basic cognitive mistake that Zach Gallethanakis exploits every day.
0: Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. It's kind of crazy. Some talking to you earlier in the year, we've been talking about like sort of who's buying, who's selling, like some of the fun flow, like the mechanics behind some momentum. And it was interesting. I didn't realize my curate thing would get so deep when I put it out. I think some of it's sort of, you know, who owns it and whatever. And I was maybe somewhat bold enough to call out a transaction that people had been burned on a lot by the name. But it was interesting when I, I started to get inbounds from like real mutual funds and like real managers and to listen to why people weren't buying. I was like, oh, right. I'm going to fucking win on this. Like I know, right? Because I don't have the constraints on it. Now, you know, whether or not I'm right on the business is sort of a totally different aspect of the trade. But on the transaction. I knew I'd make money. And I do think like my traditional sort of praying to the God of Buffett would not allow me to enable, like my mind wouldn't be allowed to think of stuff like that as I perceived what he was teaching. As I think I've gotten better at this, I've realized I'm certain he understands all that stuff and I'm certain that he he was doing it it all. Yeah, that's right.
1: I actually once got to speak to a guy who was a broker for Warren back in the day. And the stories he told were absolutely hilarious because he's a card shark, man. He would do all this stuff. He knew who was buying and selling. He understood people's margin balances. He understood all he was, you know, and he was an active trader early on. And he was an alpha male prime hedge fund manager. One of the best, if not the best to ever do it. I mean, just world-class monster. And then as he scaled, he had to become system efficient to what he was doing then. And the other thing he realized is like that viciousness. I mean, if you've ever looked at his term sheets, you understand, like, you know, you can look at the exploding deals he served with some banks at different points that are public. If you look at those, like he's not always grandpa, but he realized, look, that stuff doesn't serve a lot of utility for me here now. But if I develop this image as this thing, and I'm gonna dial back the teeth, I'm gonna dial up the friendliness and social whatever. And I'm going to have these advantages. And people critique Buffett's returns sometimes on Twitter, but what people don't understand is Buffett has earned his returns in the last 20 years, I believe, with almost no risk.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. Pretty much no risk. Yeah, I think that's fair.
1: His risk scenario is nuclear war, collapse of the dollar, rise of the lizard people type stuff.
0: Even then, man, I'm not sure he's got risk there. I mean, like, I was talking to Toby. Toby calls him a sovereign, right? Like, in the middle of a pandemic running an industrial, he doesn't need a bailout. That's crazy.
1: Right. So you got to evaluate everything on a risk adjusted basis. So I love Warren Buffett and I dunk on Warren Buffett fanboys all the time because <laughs> most people who are Warren Buffett fanboys <laughs> don't, don't know a single thing about Warren <laughs> I Buffett. I agree more. They're like, I'm like, what's your favorite? War-? I've asked, I think at least 30 people have been like, what's your favorite Warren Buffett deal? And they're like, Sees candy. And I was like, get the hell out of here. Like, if that's your answer, you don't know anything about the guy, you know. But he used to do all of that. And and I would note, like, one of the best traders I know, who's kind of a friend and mentor to me, he has almost the exact opposite of most investors. The first thing he does when he's looking at a company is first, he finds out specifically who are the bulls, who are the bears. And he gets on the phone with all of them. He calls the primes and he says, I want to know who's bearish on this. Can you set up meetings? And the primes make some meetings and then he back channels through other ways and he'll go talk to 20 firms. Who's the bears? Who's the bulls? What information do they have? What's the basis of their thesis? And he figures out if there's basically a debate around the name. And then he, fig- and then he sort of sizes it up like a war and says, here are the pillars of their sides. And then he looks at positioning and other things like that. And when he realizes an incremental piece of information is going to come out that's going to cause one side to get steamrolled, then he trades. That makes sense. And but the fundamental work is last, because when he does the fundamental work, he wants the context of the motivations, logic and incentives and constraints of the participants that actually drive prices. A lot of people say it's all about the positions. And I'm not saying you have to go entirely that way. And there's a reason that so many prop traders had insane returns. It's not just that they're freakishly good chartists or something like that. They had real flow advantage. And there's still people who still have flow advantage in certain seats.
0: I got to ask you a follow-up on what you just said before we get off it. Does he then circle back with the people that are bulls and bears to share, like obviously anonymized, but will he share people's theses? Like, Why are people willing to share what they are telling him with him?
1: I actually get this question a lot when investors are talking to me. Why are people talking to, why were people talking to a Will Ferrell account on Twitter?
0: Yeah, because they want to.
1: So you have to have social skills. You can't be, this is a clever balance in markets is I might trade against somebody, but I never want to trade against somebody in a deceptive backstabby sort of way.
0: Yeah, that'll right. torpedo your rep.
1: Right. I'm never going to put my reputation at risk. I'm never going to deliberately cause somebody to lose money. If I go to somebody and I go, look, dude, you are wrong on this and here's and here's the research, and here's why. And he goes, "The hell with you. You don't know what you're talking about. You're some Twitter guy." I'm like, "Sorry, I tried to warn you. I am short." Cool. And you know, I really never get that blunt, but you have to understand how to manage relationships. It's so important for a number of reasons. And, and so that's a really delicate and advanced social skill. And, and some of the best traders I know, I would say are, are almost like, I don't know, CIA level social engineers because they're able to extract information, but not in a way that's hurtful to anybody. They're almost symbiotic rather than parasitic because if people are gonna keep working with you, you need to also you also need to provide value to them. And so, you know, I know for me, I just have a lot of managers that I talk with all the time about what I'm seeing, what they're seeing, what I think, what they think, and I'm, I'm very candid. And, and I always try to take a tone of like, "Here's what I think. Here's why I could be wrong. I'm watching that, and I make a really big point of having explicit reasoning about here's the five reasons I'm wrong. If, if I'm wrong on any of those, I'm out. I don't care. I'm happy to be. And if I realize that that was a false positive and I have to go back in, fine. But that has a few things. One,
0: that's a skill, man. That takes time to build that skill.
1: I think the biggest thing I've learned about portfolio management and risk management over the last few years is so we've had like declining volatility every year and our returns have held up. And some people like asked me, like, how the hell did you pull that off? And I was like, well, one, I blew enough of my fingers off and I was like, oh, I'm going to not hold dynamite with my fingers. But two, most of the good risk management things feel terrible because they almost always expose you to this loss of pride of what's going to happen is you're going to call a shot. You're going to have a great thesis. You're going to cut it because your thesis is broken and then it's going to work. And people are going to call you and congratulate you on your thesis that you and
0: you won't out. own it.
1: Right. right. <laughs> yeah, fuck. And then you got to buy in at a higher price. <laughs> right. That feels terrible. And you know what? A lot of times yeah. you should buy back in at a higher price. That is a brutally hard thing to do consistently but it's what you saw Julian Robertson do. It's what you saw a lot of the Tiger Cubs do. You have to be able to do it. I mean, you go back and you look at like KOTU's like trading record on a lot of these tech companies. I mean, they've been bullish, bearish, neutral on Facebook, Apple, et cetera, multiple times. And then they got a you know $2 billion position or whatever. You know, you've know, you got to learn to do that if you want to advance to a more advanced level as, a, as, a, as an investor, not you don't have to, there's a lot of ways up the mountain, but I have found that that
0: you're allowed to speak candidly here.
1: Well, look, I, you know,
0: I agree with you for what it's worth. I think that people that aren't willing to evolve are going to get crushed. That's what this game does to you. It, it will not not do it. It's impossible. It's too hard not yeah, to. Yeah. For me,
1: I just that's what I have to do. I know people who do things completely differently. And and I love talking to people like Nafal Sonala is on Twitter is one of the best macro traders on the planet. I mean, he's a freak. His returns make no sense. They're so good. And, and one of the reasons he's so good is when you listen to him talk, you have to go take like a week to try to figure out what he just said. And then you'll realize, I, I literally will call an awful frequently a month after I talked to him. And I'm like, holy shit, I just realized you were right about everything. And when he said it, it sounded like insanity. And he's so, in his framework, but his framework doesn't make sense to most people because it's his own framework, his own words, his own everything. And so, and that makes it I think maybe a little tougher to ma- to raise money than it would be otherwise. But you know, he does everything, if not opposite, completely orthogonal to how I do it. So you know, there's there's other ways. Like you know, but for if you're going to be a fundamentally oriented investor, I just don't see the downside to really focusing on your social game. But I see all the upside. I don't understand like I understand like. So many things like there's that line. Uh value investing is like an inoculation. Yeah. And I think the insight from that line is the arrogance of it. And other people think the insight is that, you know, value highlight. But think about what people say that line. People are proudly saying, I was smart yeah, I'm enough. Right. Weak enough yeah. to be blessed with this immunity to this virus of other things.
0: Yeah. Because I read a couple books.
1: Right. And so, many of these, all of these concepts investing, every concept investing is a double-edged sword. And anybody who doesn't want to acknowledge the side of the blade that's facing your throat is eventually going to meet their end on it, in my opinion.
0: No, I agree, man. Do you know the, the bet that I have, Curate versus Zoom? That I bet with like this Austin Lieberman guy. I saw some tweets about it. I shouldn't refer to him as Austin Lieberman guy. I should call him Austin Lieberman. But what he said to me offline, and I don't think he would mind me saying this, is he was like, part of what bothers me about like the value investing crew is you guys are so convinced you're right. And he's like, you don't, a lot of you don't even open up your mind to see the other methods of winning in this game. And that, comment sort of like triggered me in a way because I was like, no, I'm better than that. And I slept on it. And I thought, you know, he's probably got a point. And it led me to study David Gardner, who's like the Motley Fool guy. And the way that that guy looks at the world, I've realized makes a ton of sense.
1: By the way, just for the, just an, a note on the side, you realize the Motley Fool makes like a preposterous amount oh, of Oh, dude,
0: money. it's an insane business. Insane. Yeah. Actually, that's, I'd like to talk to him because I think that one of the things that makes that strategy right for him is he just has an absurd amount of cash flow coming in from the Motley Fool. Right. So to continue to recycle makes sense. But I couldn't agree more. I, I think that, you know, a younger me wouldn't have studied Bill Miller or some of these other like, I don't know, some of these other guys, Drucken Miller, for instance, I've learned a ton from. And probably a younger me would have been like, ah, that's not me. I don't know. It doesn't make sense to turn off different investors, in my opinion.
1: Well, again, on top of that, I mean, I think, again, it's that I always describe it as straying from God or straying from the church. Um, these are not forbidden texts. You don't have to go read these things and then abandon your principles. Like, for example, studying high-quality growth businesses helped me better understand when you have a cheaper business that has two businesses within, that concept of one smaller business that's growing and really trying to understand you know, okay, that 10 or 20% of the business, it's going to grow into most of the business. And how do I value that? That helped me, I I was able to go out and basically bring those things back home and apply them into a value-based framework. And at the end of the day, with most value uh, pitches that I look at, the way I'm making money is for the company to go from being a value name to being a quality name. And so I'm trying to understand, you know, what does the future look like? And the other thing is, there's multiple causal factors that loop. It's, it's it's like a game where all these everything, everything relates to everything else. And so anytime you try to simplify it down to a simple factor, if I had to put like my critique of some value perspectives in one thing, it's that if you are so concerned about overpaying that you're overlooking every other risk, then the other risks are going to get you, just like overpaying can get you and overpaying can get you. And and so I want to look at a market when I look at a market, I'm like, okay, who's going to win? Or is there a clear reason why somebody should be able to win? And then what is winning worth? And what, what I just find most of the time now is, and, and it's been an existentially painful process to like go through this. And I'm, I don't mean to sound negative on value because I'm not out buying Zoom, but I've gotten to this point where I just, I've realized like, if I will boost my tolerance for, for valuations up 10 or 20%, I'm able to buy businesses that are five times the quality. And I'm like, okay, that is a good trade-off. The other thing you always have to think about is like, and this is something that's hard when you're an analyst, but when you move into PMC, it becomes more clear. Let's say you have a host of businesses where you love all of them, you think they're great, and you think they're going to combat like a 7% Kager because of your interest rate and multiple assumptions. If it's a sufficiently diversified portfolio and you're actually just concerned about the multiple, you can hedge a portfolio's multiple really effectively. Now, you can't hedge a 50 times sales thing so effectively, but you can absolutely hedge the downside from an 18 times earnings multiple to 13 times earnings multiple. How so? Well, I mean, you're going to be able to go in and wait... If you're going to be buying those things, you're going to be buying things in that valuation universe that you think are higher or superior quality businesses. So there's a few ways you can do it. One, you can just go through that universe of things that trade in that universe and figure out which ones you think are not superior businesses that are actually overpriced there, and you can short them out, and you can short them out proportionally. You got to think about what part of your actual risk exposure to your invested capital is driven purely by valuation and not by other factors. And the other thing you got to think about is in the scenario where Portfolio of 20 high-quality businesses at let's say 18 times earnings goes to 13 times earnings. What does that mean for the market? What is the probability that a sufficiently diversified portfolio of 20 plus names of high-quality businesses at reasonable market valuations? If that thing, if the multiples can get cut in half, it probably means the market got smoked. That's
0: right. What else right? happened? Yeah. That's where I've gotten to. Cause for a long time I was like, ah, I don't know. And then I started asking that exact question. I was like, what am I actually afraid of here?
1: Right now let's flip over to like zoom, for instance, like not, maybe not zoom, but like, then there's other no, things. Let's do the it. The Let's go at zoom. I'm down. Right. So, so the reason, yeah. So then you go and you've got names <laughs> that are at, so people are so, it's the leaps in logic, right? So, so people are afraid of overpaying. And so then they, make a jump that 25 times earnings is the same thing as 25 times sales. And I'm like, wait, wait a minute. Like, They'll make that statement even if earlier in their speech, they made a statement about how absurd sales multiples are. You got to recognize like, okay, there's like two things I think you have to do. One, when you're bullish on something or bearish on something, if you're saying, I have information the market doesn't have, right? You cannot expect the market to trade on that information.
0: Yeah, that's fair.
1: I see this all the time from people who do really good research. Is they, I, go, I did all this proprietary, blah blah blah. I know blank blank blank. It's gonna, uh, and then the thing trades thirty percent against them, and they're like, "The market's so dumb." And I'm like, "The reason you bought it is because you thought the market was dumb." Yeah. And so, again, it comes back to you got to understand who's trading the thing because the market isn't. It's not Mister Market. It's not some abstract collection of unknowable things. It's people with actual mandates. And and motivations, and you got to understand that. At the same time, if you got to understand that, if you have a low float tech stock, and everybody buying it is buying it because this is a lit stock, bro. Why do you think they're going to sell it on earnings being on them losing money? Now look. But it also gives you the trigger, because then if you can figure out what's going to cause secondaries from large insider holders, what's going to cause the float, what's going to cause the retail interest to not be enough to support the stock price, that's a great way to time your short on a high-value stock. But it's like the the primary issue with the Tesla short was that everyone on the long side of the trade knew the whole short thesis and didn't didn't care. care. Didn't care at all. Yep, They were like, bro, we're going to Mars. I'm buying stock. Will they miss deliveries. Deliveries. <laughs> Who gives a shit the about deliveries,
0: thing, man? We're going to Mars. Right.
1: And like, no doubt that's. You're so right. You're so fucking right. Right. And no doubt that's like insane. But I'm not interested. It's like if you go, let's say you go to the zoo and there's like three zebra and there's some drunk guy who's like, bro, which chick do you think is hotter? You're not going to debate with him. Yeah about them being zebras and not women. Yeah. Like At our firm, we, we call it low severity, medium severity, and high severity variant views. So low severity is like you and I looking at it and you think a company earns 10 cents a share, I think 12 cents a share. Medium severity is you're like 10 cents a share. And I was like, well, yeah, but I think like the iPhone is going to be a regime changing product and the business is going to change and da, da, da. So like we have the same framework. So low sensitivity, we have an identical framework, slightly different inputs medium sensitivity, we have the same framework, but I'm like, the framework's gonna change, but you're kind of with me and you'll probably come with it. And then high severity is they're missing deliveries, bro, we're going to Mars. Completely different frameworks, completely different data. And it's just like, you might as well be, you know, speaking Swahili to me. I don't, or I might be yelling Swahili at you. It's just, there's no reason in terms of the practical bridge between analysis and security price that those should foot.
0: So on high severity, are you waiting to see once your perception of reality becomes the market's perception and then you pound it or go long or whatever?
1: Yeah, exactly. You wanna wait till, so let's say if you have like, like the housing bubble, like everybody, the housing bubble is not actually a good example and I'm gonna get flamed if I use that. I don't know. Pick an example of something where there's like a highly varying opinion once people start to believe that and it starts to grow like a virus and you start to see people mentioning it and it starts to enter into how people are pricing the security and the motivations that's when you want to start pushing because then all of a sudden we agree on how we're valuing the security which means the other market participants are over time going to start and it means at least you're incrementally losing incremental buyers or liquidity or incremental sellers of liquidity and so when you have a high severity variant view, I think you have to assume it's going to trade on something other than your, you have to assume it's going to trade on the market's framework, not your framework, unless you have a really big catalyst, like, I don't know, a short report or a big release or something like that. But you have to, I really won't upsize high severity variant views. And, and the other thing is like high severity variant views, a lot of times when, you, when you're researching them, it's actually smarter to kind of just put them on the shelf and say, okay, look, I could get super deep into this. But I really just need to wait till the market, till I see someone else mention this, there's just no reason to spend any more time.
0: Yeah, that's fair.
1: Because you can go down super deep rabbit holes and then you're like, I have this super special secret thing and nobody cares.
0: Yeah. And your IRR can suck if you play that game.
1: Oh yeah. I mean... Even if you're right. I mean, I've I've seen people put up like 200% years and still have like a 8% CAGR because of that dynamic.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. I'm going to take you back a little bit to when you outed yourself, at least my perception of when you did the match paper, which my it's wife dating paper. loved, loved. Okay. The dating paper. My apologies.
1: See, that's the only review I care about.
0: Dude. She was so in, she was cracking up. I was like, I know that a hedge fund guy wrote this, but you got to read it. And she was cracking up at what you wrote. And she did say, she's like, this is all true. So how did that paper come about? What happened?
1: I was kind of thinking about two or three things happened simultaneously. One, I was kind of seeing some of the things you're describing of like how the real financial, real world and digital world were colliding. And I was like, this is really interesting. This is like a new game that nobody's really cracked. The second is we were working on the online dating space and we had been for some time. And we thought it was just this fascinating. I mean, they've basically created a monopoly on sex, which, I mean, that food and three or four of the things like it's like it's a crazy event in, in human history and i was like i feel like because it's sexual in nature nobody wants to talk about it but as was i like, think it's a much bigger deal and then the third was i did a trip to asia last year and i was in bangladesh and some of these women we were meeting with who are starting startups um were telling us how you know this was like there and other places were saying like, this is the first time, you know, I can like date outside of like my school friends, my dad's kid, friends, kids, and other things like that. And and it was much worse in other countries. And I was like, wait a minute. So, and I was like talking to them and I was like, holy shit. in a lot of places, this is the first time women have had agency over their sexuality in the history of the planet.
0: Yeah. I thought that was holy super shit. insightful, super insightful.
1: And so I was like, I was just like sitting there on the plane back and I was like, oh my God, that is legitimately world changing event. And the other thing is, you know, if you go look at what the economic impact is on countries when women are liberated, like, you know, it's amazing when half your people can start working and doing things, it's amazing what happens to your economy.
0: Yeah, what you can accomplish. Yeah. Especially when some of them are smarter, right?
1: Right. What if we just had half the people start stop not contributing or be actually no, that's not a good way. Let me rephrase that. Start being allowed to contribute. And yeah, and they have a lot of good ideas because it turns out we don't know what we're talking about a lot of things that we meant. And the other thing is, you know, in a lot of these countries that are a little more conservative, women still control 80% of household spending. And I think 80% is a conservative number because we want to retain a little bit of pride. But I'm not, you know, you know I'm not about to buy a flat screen and, and not uh, check with the girlfriend. But, you know, so I was like, this is just like a huge thing. And then, so one of the things I saw was... You know, if you talk about a stock it gets so tied up in like the stock price and where's the return and so i said we're not going to write a match paper we're going to write a dating market paper because i don't really want to talk about the stock here i think this is just a huge deal and the other thing is so many people are working on this problem because it's a big thing and i want to meet all those people so i said why don't we just write this about the market and we're going to write it in this like weird dry sort of sarcastic tone
0: it was fantastic, man. I thought that was one of my favorite papers. I don't know
1: if you ever seen like I wanted to write almost like a Veep script where it was like a, yeah. like a arsehole a legal document. Yeah, and I said, well, let's put it out there. And you know, I said, you know what? One of my things is like hedge fund guys are always horrified if I put my stuff out there, then my edge will be given away, my glorious edge, and then I won't be able <laughs> to figure it out. One hilarious, and two, um, I think online, what people get wrong is people obviously intuitively always see the obvious things can go wrong. Yes. Anything on the internet is probably permanent. Yes. Somebody could come after you in some weird way, but they don't really game it. And they go, the internet's permanent. I'm like, okay, well the internet's permanent. So that means there's also upside to it being permanent, meaning like status and that stuff matters and how you interact with that stuff matters. And I think when you put stuff out, I don't really think you lose much. And I think there are huge benefits to be gained. I don't think most people have actually gamed out the benefits versus the actual realized losses. And I don't really think the realized losses actually occur. And so I said, we're gonna put this out and I'm in the bet in house, we had it on like the whiteboard was I said, I will bet you that everyone who works in this industry is gonna reach out and wanna collaborate on this paper because, and they did. We got like 250 emails from like people at every one of the dating companies, all these startups, everybody, like academics, reporters, like all these people who've been covering this stuff, all wanting to debate the paper. I have data that just confirms this, confirms this. How do you think about this? And one of the things I try to do when I'm researching companies, I do what I would call a 360 analysis where I want to talk to everyone in the ecosystem. And I don't care about next quarter. I want to understand what are the big strategic questions in the space? What are like, so I'm going to go talk to some like psychopathically aggressive entrepreneur that's trying to shoot match in the back of the knees. Like, what? How are you trying to go at match? What do you think their weaknesses are? I want to go talk to people at Tinder, OKCupid, Bumble, and say, what makes you differentiate? How do you think about this? How is you know? How do you manage matching? How do you manage how you keep people coming back to the app? Like, how are you dialing that in? How do you think about how you do those things versus how Tinder is doing them? If you're Bumble, how does Facebook think they're going to compete?
0: How are you sourcing that? And I think this goes back to your social game and like, I relate it to playing wealth games versus status games, but like, how do you get those uh, interviews for lack of a better term? So
1: historically what we've done is, you know, network capital compounds, but nobody thinks about network or, or personal network capital compounding. And it does. And when you have the internet, you can, cap, you can compound way faster than you can otherwise because you can have these two synergistic elements. And so a lot of it's just being like, So one of the things I do is 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 what I call recursive interviewing. And so recursive interviewing is a lot of people say, let's say I'm going to call Bill, I'm going to call Toby, I'm going to call five other people, and I'm going to say, what do you think about Curate? What do you think about Curate? What do you think about Curate? And then I'm going to call some people who know sold products on Curate and some customers and all of this stuff. At the end, I've got you know 50 interviews. Now the issue is as I go through there, some people might give me bad information. I also might just go on tilt and be like, I want to buy Curate, so I'm just going to like really focus on the bullish stuff. So instead, what I do is. I call you. I say, What do you think about Curate? You tell me your thesis. I'm like, That's really interesting. And I go do the rest of my work. But as I do the rest of my work, I send you and everybody else I talk to my incremental research updates, which is like unthinkable for most people in my business. But what you find is all of a sudden they start to think of you as they go, You know, this is really good stuff from Dan. He's helping me out. He's sharing this stuff. They start to bring stuff back to you. Hey, I was thinking about what that person said. I don't think that's true. Hey, that point she made is really, really interesting. I'm going to go make some. I'm going to go ask some people about that because I hadn't thought of it that way. And what you'll find is that means if you do 50 calls, by the 50th call, you're sending that 50th call notes to 49 people, and some percentage of them are going to call other people. And all of a sudden, by doing that, and again, we're not talking about the stock at all. We're talking about fundamentals, market dynamics, the business. So all of a sudden, by doing that, all of a sudden, and assuming, let's say five or 10 of those people introduce you to one or two other people they think you should talk to. You do that a few times and it takes work. All of a sudden, you've got 100 people who are on a mailing list or or, or on a a list on your email anytime you want to talk to an industry. You do that over five or six or seven years like I have, you got several thousand people and you literally can't buy that. And then you augment it with Twitter and with you know, other stuff. And uh, it's really, really powerful. And then you do some podcasts. And, then, and so then the question with the paper was, can we just speed that up? Can I go from... You know, instead of having to do a week of calls, can I push it out and then immediately have... You know, so we push the paper out and we got 250 inbounds. So what we're trying to build at Tyro and really what I'm trying to build at high level is like a firm that embraces clever strategies like that, where we want to be like a node in the network of the actual industry and the debate and fights within the industry. And then we're going to try to invest in the long-term based on where we see really lopsided advantages. And the other thing, going back to quality and why we do it this way is like, that all takes a lot of time, right? If I go look at a... One of the issues with a lot of short selling and one of the issues, a lot of deep value is the work you do for the thesis only works once. So once you have done the research and it works, it's over. Versus if I think online dating or I think social media or whatever is going to work for 50 years, then I can go spend a huge amount of time on it because then I have an intellectual property asset of a network, of all the research, of all the contacts. And I've provided value to all of those people, like in many, and not many, but in several cases, I've like, through that process of doing those calls, I've introduced entrepreneurs to capital sources. Cause I talked to somebody else like, we're backing startups. And I was like, Hey, I talked to this guy two weeks ago. He seems really smart. I don't know. I thought he had a cool idea. I've gotten a couple of people funded. And so I mean, look, this is all like, at the end of the day, just like basic, like helping people out, like the go-giver or however you want to say that type of stuff.
0: Yeah. Pay it forward right? type stuff.
1: So the question is, can you use the digital tools to scale it up? And that's what I'm really interested in. And I think that is going to over time my big competitive advantage.
0: Yeah, I think you've proven pretty, pretty uh, definitively that you know how to, to do it. we going to
1: have see if I can do it at scale.
0: But Yeah, well, and now that you're a, a public persona that's yourself and not just super magatu, it may prove a little bit more difficult, but I don't think it will. So uh, one thing that I wanted to ask you about is you were like super early on COVID and how did you come into that information and how did you process it and sort of why were you earlier than the market was on sort of interpreting that information? Because it was, it was in the, all the headlines, right? And you were the guy that paid attention to it. There were a couple others, but not many.
1: Yeah. I mean, We have a framework for interpreting information Pull this thing up that actually has it it written down so I don't misstate it.
0: I remember reading your tweets and it was basically like you and Chris Irons quote the Raven were the two on Twitter at least that were sort of like "Uh, this could sort of be a big deal and meanwhile the market seemed not to care. It was wild to watch and watching you think through it somewhat in real time was in retrospect very impressive. Yeah,
1: so um, one, I don't believe you can, oh, sorry, I do believe you can time the market, which is a heretical statement. And the reason I say that is because I have a different definition of timing. There goes that classic Martin Bailey or whatever it's called, a uh, uh, logical fallacy. And, and the issue there is that people think timing is prediction and timing is really observation. And so you can't, I, I, I don't believe you can predict the market, but I think you can time it, which is a, a, a weird thing to say. And so there's some things about how you can do that. And, and most of the stuff I've learned there has been by managing risk and studying and looking at losses and figuring out, can I reverse those into weapons? And so the first phase is kind of moving from losing, playing defense. And now I think really in the back half of this year, I'm finally getting to a place where I can go on offense without getting over my skis. Because the issue is you don't want to be like thrashing about widely. And I, I'm really focused. My firm's called Tyro because it's the you know, Latin for novice. And originally, it means soldier in training in the Roman army. And it's uh, it, I wanted to have this mentality of learning. And so we try to go through this self-development process of any consistent form of failure. There's always going to be random failures that just happen as a matter of course in any sort of gambling type game or investing but any consistent form of loss you should be able to learn things from that and uh, you should basically first try to move them into defensive techniques to avoid that and then second you should try to move them into offensive techniques and usually moving from defense to offense is harder because it usually violates your dogma and so we think there's kind of like six things you got to pay attention to that are market drivers one is the information and within that there's extant information what actually exists in the universe two expected information and three believed information they're different things the second is information diffusion and so the costs of doing that the biases of doing that and that has a lot to do with the initial conditions and things like that then you have the information interpretation frameworks once somebody has received the information how are they going to interpret it so going back to that low medium high severity variant view framework and then you have liquidity positioning and legal mandates. So if your legal mandate says you can't sell, even though you know everything's gone down, it doesn't matter, right? If your legal mandate says you have to buy, even though you're freaked out, it doesn't matter. So you got to cross all those as well. So in this case, we had a really interesting setup. One, you know, everything had been, you know, pretty great, right? Market was really, really hot. Two, we had had this trade war. Well, we really didn't have a trade war, but we had trade war headlines that scared the market, and it ended up not really mattering. And so one of the things that happens is as you start to have feared risks that don't actually manifest in anything lasting, you get a boy who cried wolf situation. Nobody's willing to hear it.
0: Huh? Yeah. That makes sense for where we were at the time.
1: Right. The second was we had the holidays in January and that's just not a very attentive time for a lot of people. So you had a lot of things where people were not on the ball. And so when I think about how to compete with the market or the market participants, like I never want to compete against Stan Druckenmiller in timing the market, for instance. I never want to compete against David Einhorn in valuing a company. I never want to compete against Dan Loeb in writing an aggressive letter to a board. <laughs> but
0: it's very, he's very right, good. At where it.
1: I might compete with people is I want to find a circumstance where the environmental factors or something else, legal mandate, what's going on, the context means that that fighter is not able to perform at their best. If I have to fight Mike Tyson, he had better be asleep and tied to his headboard, right? And so that's how it's socially important. So we, one, we through kind of the social, focus on maintaining social relationships. We had people in China and Asia, and we have investments there telling us, hey, this is really bad. And so we're looking at it, and when we initially flagged it on Twitter, I was saying, look, I'm looking at this, And based on what what I'm seeing, at least going to be worse than the trade war, because supply chains are being completely cut off. So I didn't know at that point that it was going to break out everywhere and how bad it would be, but it's going to at least be a supply chain disruption. It's going to be a big deal for industrials and other things like that. On top of that, the last, I don't know, 25 times, basically, there's been a uh, Chinese-originated virus. It hasn't mattered at the end of the day for everybody. There have been some scares and things like that, but it, it's always blown over, right?
0: Yeah, stayed localized and whatnot.
1: Right. And so if you look at the historical data, you probably assumed that, right. So the market conditions, the social conditions, the timing conditions of where people were in the world and the base rate of outcomes for a virus in China being scary were all really, really bad. And those things cause people to make a jump to we don't need to pay attention to it. And I had friends that worked at large investment firms and banks who were calling me and telling me, particularly after the tweet, that people were refusing to even listen to the analysis in investment committee meetings. And I actually know for a fact at several firms that my tweet triggered several surprisingly large investment firms to do a fire drill internally and go, wait a minute, is this correct? Oh, holy shit, it is. And, you know, so it's just it's it's contextual. It's not that it wasn't easy to see. A lot of people saw it. I don't. I think most people were aware that there was something going on. It was just magnitude of the risk. And so that's a really like poker player type thing to get good at. You really need to understand and you really need to be speaking to a lot of people who are in kind of a top-down view. And the other thing is at that point with where volatility was and markets were, VIX, all of that options positioning, everybody was also way over their skis long. And that was a big thing because that meant that if positions had to be unwound,
0: this is going to be a Yeah. They were going to go
1: way down. Yeah. Huge oversimplification. But if volatility goes up, essentially systematics have to cut equity position. That's a way of oversimplification. So it meant that because of all of those envir- circumstantial factors and social factors and the history of buyers and all these other things, people said, well, they jumped, made that logical jump. I'm all about looking for these logical jumps. Jump two, we don't need to pay attention to it. And what they miss is that on top of that, there's another thing, which is positioning. And the positioning meant that even a modest scare was going to cause a massive unwind. And so what I was really concerned with at that point was I was like, look, like a little shake here and we're we're going down pretty hard. And that's ended up, ended up happening and then ended up being far worse than I initially thought. and. And then it was just it was apocalyptic. and you know I was back in Virginia with my family and I and my family works in the restaurant business and, and I watched almost everybody I know lose their jobs and businesses fold and all these other things. And I went from being way ahead of the market to behind the market in like six weeks, because I made this mistake. again, my, that same context factor, I pointed at other people and I said, "Oh, you're wrong." I then succumbed to it because I was on the front lines. All of a sudden, like with all my friends getting, you know, butchered, I wasn't in the Hamptons in a mansion, you know, immune to all of it. I was, you know, people were crying and I was having to comfort people. And then we have Steve Mnuchin come out and say, "Oh, we're going to just we're just going to buy everything." And and I just I was like, "You can't fix this. This is and." And I was like, and, and logistics of it have to get worked out. And then the winter is going to come and it's going to get really bad in the winter. We got the election. We got, I'm, I'm like, you've got 50 scenarios where this is a complete shit show and you've got one scenario where this works. And so I missed the spike off the bottom. And that was a mistake. And it was because I then succumbed to this exact same contextual cognitive failures that most market participants did at the top. And I realized that really quickly because I felt myself thinking and saying things. And I only caught this through journaling. I felt myself seeing and saying things that I saw people say after 08, who just got murdered for years. And so I forced myself to write this devil's advocate medium piece, which I put out. I love that
0: piece, man. I thought that piece was brilliant.
1: I was just like, what if we just iced this thing in the face in like three weeks and people got so mad?
0: Huh. So, so then, mad. did you know you were onto something? Were you like, oh shit, I got to get long?
1: Well, it was more like it created this odd dynamic because I'm making a case or something about where market prices are. And the reality was that so many people were and still are in very bad positions. And so, you know, I understand a lot of people would look at that and feel that I was sort of grave dancing which really wasn't my intention but I'm not going to blame those people for interpreting it that way when they're in that position and uh I don't think many people really want to be living on stimulus checks right and just absolutely brutal for people so you know, people got really mad there and then you know other people in the market got really mad so I didn't really get I didn't really get a sentiment signal from that so much but what I, did I didn't know if is, you were
0: referring to money managers when you had mentioned that people oh, got angry. I, I mean, no. people, I understand. It, actually, yeah. part of the reason I want to do this podcast and do it right is I want people to understand that, like, some of the money managers out there, like yourself and like this guy, Mike, that I interviewed, like, we're real people, right? And it's not, there's a difference between the job versus what you want to happen, right? And like, I thought that your medium piece was. I wrote you that night that I read it, and I was like, Man, for you to have the courage to come out to be one of the earlier bearish guys to then write a public piece and publish it, I have a lot of respect for that.
1: Yeah. I don't know if it's respectable or not, but I felt not a lot of people like, would like, do it.
0: I'm not trying to slurp you, man. I mean, I, I would, <laughs> I, I like you. We're buddies. I, I would tell you for real if, but I really respected that. I thought that that was a solid move.
1: You know, one of the things that people bring up is they say, well, if you make a statement publicly, then you as a money manager or whatever else, you're going to anchor to it. And obvious, and that's, I think, obviously true, right? But you haven't really pulled that string all the way out. And I think you can also think about public statements in a certain way. And Twitter is a weird thing. It says, I'm not going to Ira Sohn and pitching long S&P or something. <laughs> yeah, I'm like... You're testing a thought. <laughs> I'm like walking into the, I think of Twitter as, you know, I think of it as kind of the, the city square or something. So I'm walking in like saying something to see what the reaction is. And I think voicing some ideas publicly is, can be a useful psychological exercise because there are things that you might debate internally or with your friends. And there are some useful benefits to putting it out there because you can start to see, it can expose the veracity of other arguments against that. And what I started to see after I put that out was I started to observe that third leg of our kind of framework for markets, the market driver, the information interpretation frameworks. And we started to see how people were interpreting information, where some people were just repeatedly anchoring to bearish, 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 bearish. But it's increasingly, you know, I saw a lot of scope creep in the bearish theses. It went from, doomsday is going to happen, doomsday happened. Well, it already happened and it has to catch up to us. Well, now it's going to be this specific asset class, this, this, this. And you see, it appeared to me that people that were were really bearish were sort of really anchoring back to what had happened, which was terrible and really felt, I think I put this in my last letter. Still is to
0: be fair for a lot of people, right? right? Yeah.
1: Right. And, but it, it feels like a lot of things kind of didn't get what's coming to them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Yeah, I do know. Like, and in the midst of so many people, you know, all these positive things have happened, but also like no doubt an enormous number of schmucks have, have basically robbed the taxpayer and enriched themselves and all these other things. And I do think it's generally like for us from a societal standpoint, I think it's like not a good look to see a speculative boom uh, in a year where so many are struggling. But I think just as a function of where aggregate debt levels are, and as a function of that uh, interest rates, it's very hard to stimulate without pushing the risk curve in that way. Because you know, if we were at eight percent yields, you'd be able to stimulate without maybe causing as much of a, a speculative frenzy. But when you're at you know 60 basis points, it's harder because the money's kind of got to flow somewhere. So yeah, we've done that, and you know we've made several macro calls. And-, and to just expand
0: on what you just said, what what I think you're saying is, when rates are so low and the money has to fly to flow somewhere, it can go to long duration assets that are perceived as safe and growing. Maybe I'm internalizing too much of what you're saying, but it seems to me that that's where the speculative froth is.
1: I think it's um, a few things. I think one. There's the Tina factor, which is, mis- which is kind of misunderstood, but it is kind of a, it's also kind of a thing. The second is, as things sort of rationalize, there's just not that much liquidity, and you know Mark Dow is a great line that's like you know people's risk tolerance is driven by their personal feeling of security and how much money they see people around them making. And at the same time, we you know just coincidentally with this crisis, we had you know the technological tools available. And I think what people maybe misunderstand right now is you know, having worked with some private technology companies, I can tell you that like the issue with technology is rarely what the tech can do. It's generally the user adoption of the technology. And so to have everyone forced to go through their screens for everything all the time, really changed a lot of things. And all of a sudden you had Robinhood and all this other stuff and people had some cash and they didn't have any, anything else to do. And the damage was just not as bad as people expected. Savings rates went up. Massively. Yeah, that was
0: wild. Not something I would have yeah. expected
1: day right. one. And look, if they had not pulled off the stimulus as fast, as much, and as effectively as they did, and I was more concerned about the effectiveness of the stimulus, I was kind of skeptical that the administration would be able to implement this as quickly, as effectively as they did. I think that almost maybe the main reason or the most important reasons that it worked is that it was, it was implemented effectively by being implemented inefficiently. They basically just sprayed money everywhere. And a lot of people are like, well, this guy got $200,000 and he wasn't supposed to. And it's like, doesn't matter. From a policy perspective, doesn't matter. Cause what we're trying to do is make sure everybody feels safe, everybody has money to spend, that as few as people as possible are in dire circumstances and that we don't have a snowball effect. So, you know, it's it's a, uh, it's so we're dynamic and then all that happens and then there's no liquidity and then people, Oh, a bunch of people sold their equity business. Everybody has to get back in at the same time, and then you have you know all these other strategies to come back in, and then there's still the backdrop of you know why are people investing capital and there's I always think of that as basically humans are short of assets relative to what they need to retire or relative to what they need to support endowments or other initiatives and if you take that perspective on markets which is one that, you know, like Mark Dow. Mark Dow calls it an asset shortage. But I just think generally right now, for a variety of factors, like we just don't have enough future value to pay out liabilities. Um, and you know, there's a lot of ways you can interpret that. And so when all of a sudden that need for short-term liquidity, that shortening of time horizon goes away, everybody goes, oh, holy, holy shit, on a 10-year basis, we are still not ready to be. And so that it's not an immediate emergency, but it is an emergency, being able to pay your, your retirement and things like that. And so, you know, it makes sense why you see these types of kind of grind up, crash down moves, because when the need for liquidity moves short term, there's no marginal bit because everybody's like, we have to survive the short term to get to the long term. And then when it becomes clear that everybody's going to survive the short term, they got to think, how am I going to drive long term returns? They're not there. And, fixed income. So you got to go with equities. The most complicated thing, but it's an important factor to, to consider. And
0: I'll tell you the one that, uh, that hurts, man, when you and I were talking and I was like, we were, we were talking restoration hardware. It was like $95 a share. And we were both like, man, we should buy this thing. <laughs> but at the time, like, I didn't, I mean, I don't know if this happened to you. And I, I think you just said that maybe how personal you were with some of the devastation, maybe precluded some of the thought. I even said to some of my friends, like, I think spending is going to the home. Like people are inside. I just didn't believe that we could get through it. In that particular entity, you got operating leverage and financial leverage. And I just wasn't really willing to stomach that risk. But man, does that hurt?
1: Yeah. And and the other thing is it was so fast. It was When you've had issues like this this in the past, they you know were multi-year things or whatever, and the the little financial crisis, whatever we're going to call it here, we had was like I don't know three months, right? So, and so once it starts moving up, it's very hard to accept that it might be over and it's time to invest up, especially with you know when you're looking back in March, and that's it's really interesting comparing right now to March. So in March it was totally open-ended, and people were making wild claims about therapeutics and vaccines that we were going to build these vaccines faster. Than human beings have ever built a vaccine, and part of the problem it was a few things. Like Gavin Baker always is always on Twitter saying bearish theses always sound smarter, but I'm going to flip it around and be a little more offensive. The bullish theses in March and April were really dumb, really (laughs) really dumb. They were ignorance to risk. (laughs) Yeah, there was a couple things that happened. Like one, people are sending me like brokers are sending me bullish thoughts, and it's the most asinine nonsense I've ever heard in my life. Two, everyone around me is like their lives are exploding. Three, the only stuff I could really see happening short term were like bailouts that seemed sketchy to me. The whole thing just looked like a disaster, and the market's starting to rally. And I'm like, well, everybody's overly short and whatever. And then all of a sudden, the market rips off 15%. So you're
0: thinking it's short covering in the beginning of the move.
1: Right. So it's short covering, then it just keeps going. And then how do you get yourself to go back into the market? And it's like a, and it's a complicated problem. And what I should have done was probably go to 50 long, 50 cash or something like that, because it made no sense to have any shorts on at the bottom there.
0: Do you think that's true? Or do you think you're looking back at it? Like if you put me in your shoes, I'd have had shorts on,
1: man. Well, look, here's the question. At a certain point, what am I hedging?
0: Yeah, that's fair.
1: And... The flaw in my thinking, I think at the point looking back at my notes and journals was it looked so bad that if it didn't work out, I don't know that I would have been to collect the money on the short sales. Yeah. You
0: got counterparty risk.
1: Or I mean, I don't know. I just, yeah, it wasn't clear how I was going to drive real returns there because I'm going to still have some long exposure, right? And I'm not going to be massively short. So like, like. The risk reward makes not a lot of sense. It's hard to, it's, and, and also the, everything's moving so fast, in no liquidity. So, any portfolio modeling you might use is is useless. So, I don't know if it's 50 long, 50 cash. It might have been 100% cash. It might be 20 long, 80 cash. But I definitely think in that type of environment, you know, there's a point at which short selling really stops making any sense because what are you really going to be hedging at that point? And, you know, and I was just, I was very, focused on, I said, look, my money's in this, people I know and trust and I'm good friends in this. This is absolutely insane. This has never happened before. And the, and the attempts to fix it have never happened before. I'm going to protect capital. And the one thing that kind of kept me sane through that was, I said, look, I have no doubt in my punching power. And so if things kind of stabilize, I know I can still make money. And so maybe I'll miss a hero move. And I turned out missing it. My logic at the time was, I'm not going to bet my clients and my own capital on black because if anything goes wrong here, game. And you know, you know, for certain people they really liked that and they they thought that was the right approach and and other people don't like that. But you know, for I also know a lot of money managers who have blown up before at scale. And that's another trauma that I internalize sometimes. And I know a lot of people that had the never sell mentality and they doubled down at the bottom and it did not work out for them. And I always go back in my head to that kind of building long-term returns is really about avoiding nightmares more than home runs. And if you can avoid nightmares and hit home runs, that's great, but you really got to avoid nightmares because you you, you're very hard to compound out of a minus 50 or minus 40% year. So, you know, I think there were a lot of lessons there in terms of, you know, one of the things I think is is a business person or an investor, or whatever, when stuff gets completely crazy, I think it's very important to simplify everything as much as possible because the more complexity you have, the more anchoring risk you have. The harder it's gonna be to pivot. And if I'd all again right now, if, if we had gotten that crazy, I'd probably have just gone straight to cash and just told the investors, look. We can't underwrite anything right now. So we're going to sit in cash. You're not going to lose any money. And if things stabilize, we're going to go back in. But I think, because you always got to think about your positions in terms of how it's going to affect your psychology and your process, because there's a loop there, right? And I think that one of the things we've noticed is when we figure out ways to improve, sometimes we historically sort of didn't make the, the improvements quickly enough, even though we knew what they were, until the market basically forced us to make them. And I think if you realize like there's a situation you can't underwrite or something like that, I'm just very ruthless now. And I've I've got, this has been a steady progress for years, but I'm just very ruthless of when there's something that's really uniquely crazy, I'm going to go to whatever position will give me the most clarity. And then I'm going to react that way because I can't ask myself to make decisions when things are absolutely insane. I need to first get to a place where I have some balance and some clarity, and then I can go and reassess. And, and there were things during that period where you could have bought them that were, you know, 60% cash and they could shut down for two years and be fine. It is it is somewhat hard to see those things if you have, you know, 20 positions, which are, you know, this one might go bankrupt or this, is this, this, this. And, you know, God forbid you are a small cap only manager and you had stuff that was on 50, 60% and you can't even get out of if you wanted to. Yeah, that'd be right? tough. So, I think one of the things to like long-term longevity is figuring out how you sync all those processes in your portfolio to your own psychology your team psychology during those scenarios because you know just as that case that the bull case sounds less intelligent a lot of the good survival strategies that are high sharp over time they sound almost cowardly and they don't sound they don't sound cool like saying hey i'm going to go to cash for a month because the world might end and I'm just going to buy super high quality businesses when I think they're cheap on a three-year basis. And I'm going to scale into them over the next few months. Like that's not like a cool sounding strategy. Nobody's yeah, like,
0: it sounds like anyone a, can do a, it.
1: <laughs> right. That nope. you know, Michael Lewis is not coming to write a book about you about that strategy, but that strategy is structurally dominant to most of things. So we do a lot of work going back and trying to analyze our own trading and figuring out, you know, is there just a structurally dominant play in this type of scenario and you know, that was kind of my main learning from this year.
0: It's interesting that you say that for, for some reason, when you were talking, I was thinking of Buffett in March when people were like, oh, he missed the bottom. And it's like, well, you know, did he really, or was he just sort of putting himself in an anti-fragile state and maybe your buyback yield doesn't really matter at that time, right?
1: How many hundred billion dollars is he long the U.S. economy?
0: In uh, in market cap, what, 500-ish.
1: Right. You know, plus all other stuff. So, right so the guys through that and the other entities probably you know i don't know plus the insurance exposure plus all yeah. other stuff he's built a very robust thing and the other thing people i think maybe messed up is like it's not like all of those tentacle arms aren't out there doing things because one of the things that he probably recognized that he would never say is this was going to be a result that if we got through it was going to result in winners and losers yeah, that's i do right. think winners and losers is the is the theme of the next five years, which is why I think it's going to be awesome to be a long, short manager. But I think Buffett realized anybody that he owns that has his financial backing is just going to be able to knife anyone else in their sector. That's right. He doesn't need to buy anyone.
0: Yeah. Just make sure you get to the next iteration of the world with capital to invest.
1: Right. And not only that, but his operating businesses day one, Mm -hmm. whenever the smoke clears day one, they have better weaponry, better armor, better transport, better communications, Everything better, yeah. and the other guy—it's just walking out of Hiroshima. Just oh my god, what happened? And Warren Buffett has him, you know, lobbing peanut butter grenades at their competitors. I mean, just if you think about it from a—and there wasn't like a lot of liquidity, and also nobody was coming to him for like some mega sweet deal. Yeah, that's right. So why would he gamble a dominant, controlling, competitive position? I mean, think about the amount of money he had to put to work to really change the percentage. Yeah, some buyback to
0: yeah
1: and i guarantee you he knew the returns on his buyback versus the returns of having that cash to deploy into operating businesses to compete yeah and i didn't see anybody consider that but you know at a certain point if you think businesses are about to die why are you going to go buy them if you can just roll over their you know it's like uh con from the the, the uh, star trek with benedict Cumberbatch. yeah he's like he goes full psycho mode he's like i'll walk over your cold corpses like that's yeah. What Buffett can do? Obviously, he's not going to say that, but...
0: No, well, that, that would ruin the grandpa image, but that's definitely what he was thinking.
1: Right. He has the ability to like unleash teams of Navy SEALs against his competitors and all these industries. And the other thing is, because of this fog of war, his businesses can be far more aggressive in taking market share than they could be normally, because nobody's going to call on him on yeah. it. Fully weaponized Berkshire in normal environments is like a legal risk waiting to happen but when america's struggling and they need building products uncle warren is there like it's just again it comes back to people not understanding warren's strategy
0: yeah you know what's interesting man is what you're talking about i think sometimes when we like you know on twitter and whatever when we talk stocks i think some people miss the like the big picture game some of these companies are playing right. and i think valuation gets in the way of people's minds and i'm not even saying that it's um Netflix is one that I have really like dealt with from a competitive position. I don't have a real big view on the stock, but I have gotten to the point where I'm like these guys are just playing a different game. And maybe that's stupid of me to only get here now. But they're not playing the same cash flow game that everybody else is playing. And I think if you're not seeing that, you're not seeing the the field clearly if that makes sense. Now, whether or not the stock should be higher or lower, I don't know and I just think it precludes the conversation that is interesting, which is, would you play the same hand in the same spot?
1: Right. I think the question with, question with so many of these great businesses, value or not value, I want to think about them, is size them up as competitors, as sports teams, as however you want to think about that, as athletes and teams of athletes. And so one of the things we've really pivoted on is we've pivoted from thinking about businesses as assets with people managing them. To networks of people, so one of the things that got really exposed this year was that if you had a good culture, a well incentivized team who was able to use technology correctly, you could all communicate. The robustness that builds in is insane, and so, you know, one of the things is like I spoke to a CEO of a company, multi billion dollar company, who was crying because things were so bad, and then a couple weeks later, they were crushing it, and I was like dude, what what happened, man? Congrats. Congrats. I'm happy for you, but lots changed. Break that, break that down for me. And he's like, well, you know, he's like, we had all these trade-off decisions we had to make. There was no good answer and it was terrible. And then I have all these, you know, late twenties whippersnappers that aren't scared, that are smart as shit. And they came into me and said, Hey boss, man, we fixed X, Y, Z. We have this plan. We have this plan we got this new shiny gun. We can do this. We can go after a competitor this way. We can get to customers this way. We can do this, this, this. We've built all this. And he's like, oh my God, like the team came together and supported the quarterback when the quarterback was hurt. And versus a company that prides itself on not having nice coffee.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's the simple ex- explanation of it. And so I think these strong cultures of really integrated teams that can communicate really well, that give the right authority down to management and allow people to make You know the right calls. I'm obsessed with this book called On Flexibility by Meyer Finkel. It's about military strategy, specifically adaptation to technical and doctrinal change. And it's talking all about how to build organizations that are robust this way. So I'm really interested in that dynamic of how do you build these companies and what are these companies like? Because those companies, especially the more technology comes on, a lot of people, when you say technology, their brain goes bubble. When I hear technology, I'm trying to think connectivity and coordination and adaptivity. And so if you have a thousand smart people who can all talk to each other and talk up to management and elevate recommendations that can actually be implemented, and they can try out new tools, and they can talk with customers, and they can iterate, and they can take needs from the customers and turn that fast, then you're competing against somebody that has an old school, old boy- Yeah, they're gonna kill him. Murdered. Yeah, And then on top of that, because of COVID, 80% 80% of consumers' time is spending on one of about five companies' web portals and on a few devices. So all of a sudden, all that's going through a very limited number of channels. And so a lot of legacy modes and assets are completely irrelevant because most people are not going to price compare anything because it's, they don't think before they buy. They just go, I need this, and without even thinking about it, they, I don't think when I pick up my phone, my hand thinks information, I go, phone, and I have it, and it's open. And more and more of the cutting edge of commerce right now is unconscious actions by customers and how to... It's using technology to program your customers and program your employees and program... It's human, engineering humans using technology. That's the cutting edge. And I said this on Twitter the other day, the next thing is going to be unconscious buying. I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's going to be like something where you look at something and it's going to automatically add it to your cart. And you're going to have to opt out, not opt in.
0: Yeah, watch it be from Oculus delivered by an ad via Instagram or some shit like that. And Facebook owns a lot of it. I would not be shocked if that's the way the world ends up.
1: Right. But I think the next thing that's going to happen is I've gotten really obsessed with studying strategy as more of an abstract concept away from finance, because the way technology is intersecting into businesses right now, traditional models of business are not going to serve you well to understand what's happening. And so you know, the best example is... You can have the best prices, best deals, best this, 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 this. If the customer literally never sees your product or isn't aware it exists, it doesn't matter. And what's happening right now is companies are realizing, okay, here's the value chain. Can we insert ourselves at one point and use that as a lever to flip the whole damn thing? And there's this core issue of, around aggregation theory and demand. If you own the demand, if you control the customer and you need money to get supply, that's basically trade financing. I need money to get A to B for most things, right? It's basically, a, you need credit. And there is a demand for credit with yield in the market. If you have a thing and you want to go get customers, that's venture money, baby. That's very expensive. And there's not that much demand, especially for mundane products. With the spectrum, there's a little bit more of it. But people don't price. That's a subtle but very important thing. Ultimately, is the need of your capital to source demand or to source supply? Is it going to enhance demand? Is it going to enhance supply? And why? And what, And how does that influence your, your strategy? And so I think so much about it. And when you start to look at businesses that way, and you start to look at exactly how sticky... We're looking for what I call neurological inevitability, something that is almost instinctual and habit-forming, and you're not going to disrupt eating, you're not going to disrupt romance, you're not going to disrupt all these other things. Those things are really interesting, and when you start to find some of those, and you realize, especially some of these companies are so far not just ahead, but so much faster and meaner than their competitors. Like for example, like you know, a lot of companies, like people, are, you know, these super nice tech companies that you know, they're great, but you know, DoorDash has teams that their only job is to figure out how to sabotage GrubHub and just knife them. How do we change our ads? Change our where do we appear? What are we offering? You know. Can we hire tactical employees away from them to make it harder for them to pivot? They're going to figure out the particular person within their competitor that allows them to hire high-quality people, and they're going to hire that person so that that company can't hire new talent and effectively. That's where like the cutting edge of really high-level corporate competitiveness is right now. That's the stuff that I'm obsessed with right now. and if I'm seeing that from some of these Businesses, not all tech, but you know, a lot of tech and a lot of others that are that level of savage competitors. Every new thing that's happened has become a full-on war and weapon systems that they're advancing. And then I have another company that's like, we don't spend money on nice office chairs for our employees. And our employees have been here for 30 years. I'm like, you're dead and you don't even know it. Like they're gonna crush you. And it's like Terminator. You've got like a little fat kid fighting Terminator. It's absurd. And so I'm happy to buy things cheap. It has that type of uh, Terminator characteristic I'm looking for, but I really want to be long Terminator and and short the children that unfortunately have to fight Arnold Schwarzenegger.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And particular debate I'm in right now is about Netflix. And to your point, like, I totally understand why the financial analyst community would say, like, it's not viable. And I was there like I used to do it, too. And I mean... I'm not saying buy the stock. That's not at all what I'm saying. But I'm saying if you analyze the competitive landscape, the idea that Viacom is somehow going to compete with Netflix when Netflix has like that shareholder base and the debt markets that are going to finance it. like Your cash flow matters, but that strategic advantage of focus plus just unlimited patient capital right now. Seems to me to be if you're not at least like if you're considering being long Viacom and you say, well, everybody's entitled to something because of back catalog and you're not at least accepting the premise that just the constant deluge of content and, and the attack from Netflix is going to hurt your franchise. I just don't we don't see the world similar, you know, through the same lens. Right. right? And I think that that applies in a lot of different places today.
1: Well, I think the intersection of that dynamic with rates and things like that is really interesting because more and more businesses are playing to win. And their capital base is, you know, an allocator friend of mine put it as, I forget, he said like the anointed ones or the chosen ones, something like that. And he was talking about, you know, he said, look, you know, I think we were talking about Carvana. And he said, look, a bunch of these funds that are really smart and have a lot of capital have decided that this company competitively
0: is the one we're going to bet on
1: and is the one we are going to support relentlessly with however much money they need. Because even way past where you think on a current valuation basis, this is the company that has the capacity to win and has the momentum and the KPIs we think that must lead to winning. And so, we're going to continue to fund it. And so, one of the issues there is that comes down to orthogonal market uh, information interpretation framework. Okay, I'm going to ask you to
0: explain that to a five-year-old, what you just said.
1: Okay, orthogonal is like a math word. I just mean completely unrelated information interpretation framework. so, what I mean by that is you and I might look at it and say, well, we think the cash flows, the return on invested capital, something like that are are not high enough to justify where the stock is priced. And that may or may not be a valid argument. But the issue is if the people who are funding that company are thinking about it as a venture capital bet that happens to be publicly listed, and they are, their reason for investing is that they think in 10 years that that business will have 60, 70, 80% market share in a massive market, the only thing that matters is one, will those people quit on that? Or two, will somebody pull their capital where they can't, it doesn't matter if they want to, they can't back it anymore? Right, and so now, so that tells you like a lot because then all you needly need to understand, and this is where I've gotten on a lot of short cases where I'm looking at and I'm like, I totally understand how the short could work, I totally get it, I'm with you, you know. When is Sequoia going to bail on this? And they're like, Well, I haven't talked to Sequoia, and I'm like, Okay, well, then I don't want to hear. Right. So unless you can tell me when Sequoia is going to quit. Or why sequoia is going to quit i want to hear why the capital Fighter is going to bail because they're going to keep pushing it or i want to tell me who's a better competitor that's the other thing is so i most of my shorting now is competitive based theses where one of the things that happens repeatedly now is there's some like hot bucket of whatever and one of them comes public and everybody goes we love this theme so we got to get along this one and they miss that Maybe a billion of venture money went into that one. And then $5 go into another private company. And the public company all of a sudden has to report earnings. The other one doesn't. And so the greatest example of this was Grubhub versus DoorDash, where DoorDash did a massive round with the explicit mandate to not care about unit economics, just to murder Grubhub.
0: That is savage stuff, man. How do you compete
1: against that? Right. And that's because these guys are betting. And that's the thing is you got to... There's one interpretation one is these people are fools who are gambling money and the second is these are very serious people who just bet a billion two billion five billion dollars to win a market so you need to consider that in your analysis of whether or not they're going to capitulate that's a big bet and they are going to do everything, not just financially. The other thing that people don't realize is, like, these investors are helping these companies in every way they can and introducing them to business partners, customers, talent, all of this other stuff. All of those people making those large bets, if they're smart, are doing everything they can to all help that debt company. markets,
0: man, right? Like, if the venture right. firms are putting them in touch with Goldman, Goldman's putting them through, you know, to all their best clients. Like, that stuff really matters.
1: Or they're, or they're you know... Fund has an LP that owns a big auto business, calls and says, hey, talk to these guys. They can source inventory. That stuff happens all the time. And so you have, again, it comes back to evaluating a company as a network. When you understand that stuff and you understand when you look at the full kind of army that that company has versus 10 guys in you know Georgia are trying to sell cars, you want to say the guys in Georgia are underpriced.
0: Yes. It's like, dude. A hundred percent, man.
1: And I find it very helpful just to boil it down to handicapping a fight, like forget for a second, you know, and and again, a lot of these, I'm going to pass on because I'm going to go, look, I think that's a totally mismatched fight. I think that growth company probably wins. And I'm not comfortable with either of that. I'm going to find an easier game to play going back to kind of circle of confidence. So I want a reasonably valued, very unfair fight, but I can't get down with a lot of these short theses at a high level unless those things can be worked out because I don't think people really understand how advanced this game has gotten.
0: Or until you see the crack in that thesis, right? Like if you start to say, okay, well, why is X firm going to bail on this company? Once you start to see it, okay, fine. I'll short it. Right. But like, I'm not shorting that stuff before that cracks, because to your point, like they're just playing a crush you game. And I, I think a lot of people that get hung up, and maybe I'm internalizing this because this is who I used to be. I used to look at current economics and I'd be like, this is bogus and it's going to fail. But now I've sort of realized like the people that I think are going to fail are just playing a different game. And I need to adapt my framework to the game they're playing to see what's actually going to happen. And the old me would have liked some value traps that were going to attack by these behemoths, Maybe you don't want to be long the behemoth, but I know you don't want to be long this, the underpriced guy that's getting attacked.
1: Right. Now, the exception is, as I said before, if you've got a really good jockey who's going to unlock value there and figure out how to sell it to the behemoths like that, that's an exception. There's a lot of exception edge cases, but there are a lot of cases where, like, there, was, there are two genetics companies. One was called Myriad Genetics, the other one was called Invite. And when I looked at that, Invite was basically selling the exact same genetic tests as Myriad. At like 10 or 20% of the cost, and they could do them faster, better, all of that. And it was automated, and it was just it was just studly. They were, it was incredible. They were way better at everything. And I said, look, I don't know whether or not there's any terminal cash flow for Invite, but I know there's none for Myriad. And that's enough for a short thesis for me. And I'm looking at it that way. And so I think you know, you have to sequence your evaluation process. You have to have this discussion about a business. And most of them, the answer is do nothing. As an investor, you don't need that money. You know, now that we've, you know, We've ranted heretically against some value stuff for a while, but then once you've done all this, then you can go back to punch card. Then, yeah, let's look for the ones that we do think are... you know There are businesses at 10, 15, 20 times earnings that are just as dominant in their world as Netflix is in theirs. And I, for a lot of reasons and my own biases, or whatever, I'm just going to be more comfortable owning a 12 times earnings dominant player then I'm going to be owning
0: uh, Netflix. Something that I've noticed about you over the past year is I have been really impressed with the inflection points that you've been able to identify. There's three specific ideas that I'm not going to name because I don't know if we should, but you like bottom-ticked a retailer to me that no one else liked, and you liked it for the right reasons. There was an asset management play that I think you're really right on and then there's sort of a smaller company in a bigger industry. That's really good. And how do you think you got yourself to see the framework of being able to like really, I don't know, man. That, I mean, I texted it to you. like, I, I root for you. I think you're seeing the right things. How'd you get yourself to that point?
1: When does it get simple? So that's the question. And my old boss had a, had a phrase price simplifies, but there's other things that simplify. And so, one of the mistakes people make i don't know if it's a mistake other people i don't know i can tell other people how to cook but the way that i cook is when i'm researching something i want to make sure and i or if i ask you know my analyst or somebody else that's working for me to look at something i'm going to say look we are not looking to take a position in this i just want to know the business right so we're going to detach ourselves from we're going to try to figure out that competitive dynamic." We're going to try to figure out what we think internal value is, what we're going to try to think, you know, we're going to, try to really think about the business and we're going to try to figure out what do we really need to know to be comfortable with the business, uh, you know, long, short, this, that, or whatever. And then we're going to also try to figure out once you do all of that, we're also going to, try to figure out who is in the stock, why are they in the stock? What are their incentives? What else is in their book? That whole landscape, talk to people and, and really like get to know, almost try to become a specialist in the business and, and what we like is situations where, so I pay a lot of attention to like the psychological stuff. And so I'm looking where I understand the bear, I, I want to be able to pitch the stock on both sides. If I can't pitch the bear case hard, I'm not bullish, right? So what I'm looking for is something where the bear case is great, great. So like one of the, the REIT we mentioned is, is Colony Capital, we can talk about that one because we're, we're fully invested in that. And, colony there was a great short thesis which was you know tom barrack had done a bunch of terrible deals and it had lost people an enormous amount of money and it had a bunch of debt and all this other stuff and then it kind of simplified and i was first told about this name by another twitter person and i loved the setup because there was all of this mental baggage of how much money had been lost how it had been it
0: had lost, some political uh, baggage on it too
1: political baggage every part of this business, there were it was failing, essentially. I don't know, failing. But it, it was doing poorly for very, very definable reasons. And so what we do is just put a memo together. You know, It can be one page of just what are those reasons? And then what we're looking for is what are the reasons that the business is not doing well? And also what are the sources of risk? And what you'll find is if you just like Don't pay attention to the stock price so much. And you can add another section for positioning stuff if you want. That's what I do too. But there'll be moments where all of a sudden something will happen. And it'll be like when you solve a math equation in middle school or high school, where you all of a sudden can cross out all the terms. And you realize, holy shit, when this tweaks, five risk drivers go away. This goes away. And all of a sudden, we've got like one risk thing left. And that's actually the risk we're not really that worried about. And, and if you have that, and at the same time nobody's long the stock, and everybody's going to have to get long the stock because of its market cap and all this other stuff, that's when you get really good timing insights on how to how to time when you want to really size a position up. We might own it without all this stuff being perfect, but that's when we really want to punch it. And we really got to there from reversing how we had lost because in the past we'd buy something because we thought it would work out our way, and then it we it would just get whipsawed around for a year, 18 months or something like that. And a lot of people, like they feel good about that because I'm a disciplined value investor and I held it for a long time. Like That's cool. That's fine. But I could also be making money in the meantime. And it's also hard to hold massive positions. right? And, and I want to be massive when I'm right. And so what I reversed and realized was that with a lot of these positions, there were, it was very obvious what was wrong with the business. Nobody wanted to own it because XYZ issues were not sorted out. Why was I huge in it before XYZ was sorted out? Because I was worried I was going to miss the one day. Yeah. I think as a value guy, I suffered and a lot of other people suffered with the FOMO of missing the gap up. Day I've suffered
0: from this solved. with Wells. like, right? Like I see right. something, I feel like I need to own it today. And everybody's like, no, dude, there's risk you should avoid. And I'm the one that feels like I have to be the smartest.
1: And, and the question is, I think there's some gambling concepts that are super, I actually think poker is super useful in this context. So it's not just the risk reward it's how much can you how much absolute money can
2: you get yeah.
1: right so like the ideal circumstance in poker is if you hit the nuts on the river and everybody's pot committed that's nirvana yeah. cuz you can get everybody <laughs> all the way in you can stack five people yeah. right versus you flop the nuts and there's 20 bucks in the pot and everybody's sitting with there's 10 grand on the table but there's only 20 bucks in the pot and you just flop.
0: yeah it doesn't help you, know, you quad that much
1: aces, Right. And it's clear to everybody, you've got quad aces. Like That's not great, right? So you got to think about that type of sequencing and setup. And once those risks goes, what you have to game out, and it helps to just jot it down on paper. What you have to game out is, if those things get fixed and we're up 20% on the stock, what's the risk reward post-de-risking? And what you'll often find is that post-de-risking, the risk, absolute risk award goes bananas, even if the absolute return drops. And what you find is you can actually take that position from you know, X to 5X, and that's antithetical to wanting to buy it absolutely as cheap as possible. But it also eliminates your nightmare blow up risk, right? because that means you're always sizing up positions into winning stories that are experiencing inflows as they get batted back into indexes, back into mandates, and as active managers and pseudo-active and passive, whatever, if people stop wanting to be underweighted. And the other thing is like, you gotta look at from the holder base perspective, if you can have one of those events where at the same time, the name becomes an easy overweight for mutual funds and things like that to outperform their bench, it's great. It's like Colony, for instance, like sits in a weird sort of financial TMT crossover thing. And as the story pivots from this terrible real estate read to a pure digital asset thing, compared to what the other things you can own is like a financials manager, right? If you can own, you know, more Ozark bank or you can own Colony, you're gonna buy Colony, right? So you gotta think about, so I, I always try to break it down back into like, and I find it so helpful to think about all this stuff like a game, and just think about, okay, I make this move, what are they going to move? if that move happens, what happens? and then write out those permutations, write out the conditions. and, and the thing is there are going to be these situations you fear. it's gonna sometimes it's gonna like yesterday I was trying to build a position and a uh, name got bought out as I was I was trying to buy it and you know it's frustrating, but that was the discipline move is to not plow in and you know and I thought I had time before catalyst would happen, but you know it's frustrating. And I, I hope I can get better at that over time, but it was a disciplined move. And but you're cutting off these left tail night, nightmare scenarios, and you're always going to be biggest in things that are winning. And I think that's going to help your psychology be better. I By you, I'm really talking to myself. I think that helps psychology be better. I think that helps. Well, I think that helps morale, and it also helps like the other thing when you're talking about like socializing with other managers. There's a risk of socializing mistakes. So you make a mistake and you go to the people, you gotta be careful that the reason you're going to people is not to justify your mistakes. I bought this, it went down 20%, I thought it was cheap. Ah, oh, Nobody could see it going down, it was cheap. That's not good for you. But if you're buying up when there's a confirming event and you're sharing that with the people you collaborate with, then you know it helps build your social credit and you don't have as much risk in your social circle of being the dude who's constantly being like, now is the time to buy Fannie and Freddie. Now is the time to buy Fannie and Freddie. <laughs> Which by the way, now right. might be, I don't know. <laughs> I, having, having said that it might be the time That's to buy right. and Freddie, but <laughs> not you know,
0: financial advice.
1: <laughs> right. You know, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know either. I, I
0: just saw an, I saw an article s- today and I was like, Oh shit. Frannie and Freddie are still around. That's interesting. Right.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, so I kind of, you know, in the weird philosophical rambling of that today, I just think you need to really think through the research process, the trading process, your own psychology, how you're documenting, how these things fit together, because you're, you want to maintain what I would call rhythm. You want to be in like a flow state of like performing and performing well. And the more frictions and kind of like, The more you decide to make things harder, to feel smarter, you're going to miss these just super obvious things. And the other thing is over time, if you build your process this way, over time, you have such a backlog of stuff you're monitoring that you never need new ideas, really. And you're constantly going to have stuff you know happening. And then it, it lessens your susceptibility to FOMO and to like getting dragged into some meme name. Like it's really risky to go by like securities inherit characteristics of their holders.
0: Oh, that's very insightful, sir. I like that.
1: So examples like like Blue Links Holdings is a great example. So like everybody yeah, on my it. To of likes it. That. I like I liked it. Yeah. I own some of it. We all own some of it. Let's just all admit yeah. that. But you know it was like eight value funds own the whole damn yep. thing. And so that stock's performance was those eight funds' performance, and that's not maybe the case for Apple, but it's really important to look kind of stock to stock because the market is not—it's not really an aggregate. It's maybe an aggregate for certain securities, but for most individual securities, there's probably something unique about the holder base and their and their motivations, all the other things, and it's going to really depend. That's going to determine how the pricing mechanism works. You know, if like. There are certain names that were 80% of the float is owned by passive. So how are you going to argue to me that at any point that thing is going to be valued based on intrinsic value?
0: Unless you have some allocator. If it's undervalued, you need the CEO that understands how to exploit that advantage. But outside of that, it's just dead.
1: On the other hand, if it's overvalued and you've got like a psychopathically aggressive M&A guy that's smart, (laughs) I've seen it work before.
0: That's fair. As long as they're issuing shares as currency.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah spend that stuff
0: so uh I gotta close out on one question. I really appreciate you doing this. How do you deal with a position that you're long really working? I think that a lot of times it's hard to watch a position go from become a really big part of your book and never sell at the same time. My bias yeah. is against never sell. I have a sense yours probably is, but I have a sense we probably lean similarly. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah.
1: That's like the hardest question. Well,
0: right? that's why I asked um, it, man.
1: How do how do you <laughs> I got you in the box? <laughs> right, you know, I have one right now. But look, I think you need to decide. It, your the optimal solution for how to structure your portfolio depends on what your capital is, who it's from, what the goals are, things like that. If your goal is your own money to compound it at an after-tax rate for 50 years, and you're convinced you have an Amazon, a Facebook, whatever, I don't know that you need to really do anything, but you need to be psychologically prepared. You need to really be honest with yourself that if you're up 60% and you you end up up 20% for the year, is that going to mess up your ability to, are you going to miss the next one because of the drawdown in the first one? That's the risk reward people don't price correctly. So, if you're, you're, you know, the way that FinTwit people manage their PAs is not survivable as a fund manager. It's just not. And if you can find somebody who will give you 10 year locked up capital, go to town, baby. Like, good for you. I respect you. You're a beautiful, beautiful person and you should just go at it. But for the rest of us in the real world, you have to decide where is the ceiling on a position size. For me, it's generally around 20%. And, and, and I think about this on two things, two levels. One is, what is the forward after-tax IRR? So if I think the forward after-tax IRR went from 40% to 10%, and the other things in my book have a forward IRR of, uh, and we do a scenario-based IRR, and we also do some price-implied expectation work and things like that. So if the IRR is dropping, the position's massive, and the other stuff in the book has a higher IR, we rebalance into the other stuff, pretty simple. And you know that's easier if you have multiple things you like. If you only have one thing you like, it can be harder. The second thing is there's this concept of, and I also think we need to, we need to be clear, if you put on like a 50% position and you're up like 20% or something, that's just not what we're talking about here. I'm talking about if you have a five or 10% yeah, that's position right. that, five X's or 10 X's, right? Yeah, that's right? right. So when you have like that magnitude of a gain, I think your tax sensitivity needs to take a back seat, practically. You just had a home run. You should be very proud of that.
0: Yeah, even after tax, you're doing pretty well.
1: Right. Run the after tax numbers. Like don't be the guy. I've seen people with a lot of money being worried about tax sensitivity. I've seen people wipe out portfolios being worried about tax sensitivity. Just optimize after tax returns. The other thing is when you're oversized in a position, you are effectively paying for volatility because when there's volatility, you can't add because you blow up your book. So if you have a 50% position, if it draws down, you can't add to it. And if a March happens or end of 2015 happens or February, 2017 happens or whatever, if any of those things happen, you can't buy. The other thing is, let's say you think that fundamental story is getting better. The justification to keep holding a stock is well, the business is getting better. Sure. But if the business is getting better and the market has a little snafu, then, well, uh, all of a sudden you can buy it at a better risk reward. Kind of as I said, fundamental improvement, regardless of price, can improve the risk reward. So my approach is when I get to a big position size, if I don't have timing anymore, I want to take it back to a level where I have some flexibility. Where I'm kind of in my athletic, on the balls of my feet position, you know, where I can start dip, dive, duck dodge whatever the thing from dodgeball is and i love how you use that as the
0: example of athletic ability
1: (laughs) yeah dodgeball athleticism i need to be able to dodge a wrench so i can dodge a ball
0: i like it that's classic
1: and so i so for me that's like a four to seven or eight percent position depending on the things for me like 10 at cost is usually the limit and and usually i have something else that's not a higher irr like I haven't encountered anything that after being up five or 10 X still has a higher IRR than the rest of them. Yeah, product. And I think the other thing is a retail investor, because retail investors tend to not keep notes and don't tag them things like that. When you sell something, you forget about it. Yeah, Right. And the reality is sometimes you should buy it back higher. If it's actually gotten better, you gotta be monitoring the risk reward more than anything else. And you know, so for us, it's like 20 ish percent. We're going to be cutting it back to four to eight and you know, depending on what's going on there, and, and most that depends on what else is in the book. But we're also not afraid. You know, depending on if you are sensitive at tax, like I do think you should be looking at, you know, can you sell some calls? Can you put on, you know, risk reversal or some other type of structure to, you know, hedge you for some reasonable period of time to you know, get get to next year. Maybe you don't want to get to next year this year. I don't know. But look at creative ways. You don't necessarily need to sell the equity, but like do look at ways to take your the other thing is like, if you're up like that much, like the yield on cost you're getting from selling options at that point is like, yeah, 30, it's all
0: gravy, right? Yeah, right? no doubt.
1: Right. Like, <laughs> so, you know, think about that. Cause you can take that premium, you can roll it into, you know, so if you, you know, you got a name that's at 50% IRR and now it's a 10% IRR and you're like, I don't want to sell it cause taxes and cool. Sell some options and put it into the other stuff in your book that is 30% IRR yeah. and then ride that. Or, you know, I, I mean, don't be afraid to like, buy some puts on a name you own, you don't, you don't have to do the whole position either. I mean, sometimes we'll hedge the overweight position. So we segment our positions by kind of core and then like bonus. And um, bonus is when you know we've got a view on catalysts and things like that. And we're kind of like, you know that's when we're up to like max position. A max position for us comprises of kind of a core fundamental allocation. And that's what we're willing to white knuckle through any volatility. And then we're going to really put the pedal down if we've got max conviction on it. And so what we're going to trade around is that bonus allocation. And there have been things that I really like where I like know that something really bad's about to happen, and I've bought puts on things I own. I bought calls on things I was short. You know, one of my like best trades a couple of months ago is I bought some Nikola calls because I there was no borrow. Oh,
0: look at you, you ass. Get out of here. You know,
1: and I'm not bullish on Nicola, but I was just like, this thing could. Man, I liked
0: you before this.
1: (laughs) I was like, this thing could squeeze people's faces off here. It was like September 30th and everybody thought they were going to cancel the GM deal. And I was like, why would GM cancel it before this fabricated date? And GM, for a lot of reasons, I didn't think could for political reasons and i was like then there was like no borrow at half the primes and so i'm like okay so for you. i think i put a, like 11 basis points on that i mean it wasn't like a big position it was just like i'm just gonna put a little bit of like let's not get murdered here and that's in full candor the reason i did that is because i've had my head cut off that way on, on shorts before and i mean on a percentage basis i think that's like my best that was like a i don't know like an 18x or something on the premium because I'm a genius, it was like 11 basis points. But like, you know, <laughs> it'd be a much better story if I was like, so I put 5% of my fund and I made, you know, oh no. And now I'm on an island. Right. No, it's more like, <laughs> now nah, if you do that, you have a hard time going to LPS. It's a little easier to say, hey, we put, you know, 10 basis points to hedge us getting murdered on the short side. And they're like, yeah, that was smart. Uh, well,
0: look, real talk. That's why I think you're the real deal. Like that kind of thought is, uh, I think the reason that I am, grateful that you said yes to this and the reason that i wanted you to be my second guess is i want people to know that like i fully believe in you i root for you and i think that you have a legit shot to be sort of you know you talked about einhorn and Loeb and ackman and like man i think you got a shot to be the next generation of that and i hope that you realize it and uh I really appreciate your time.
1: Oh, thanks, man. I and mean, that's very kind of you to say, I'm just, I'm trying to be the, the best me that I can be. But, uh, I mean, I appreciate you having me on and, and you're one of my favorite people I've gotten to meet with the platform. I always enjoy talking to you. And I mean, I just think the best thing about, um, you know, this strange little digital Twitter culture we have is that we all get to hang out and, and chat and exchange ideas. And, and, and at least before I have some beers and. I look forward to doing that with you again once the uh, pandemic's over.
0: Well, I do as well, and uh, I'll continue to call you with pitches on things like curate, and uh, hopefully it adds some value to your if life. Anything it has thus far, that's been a good trade. Yeah,
1: man. Anything that grandmas are going to buy, I'm I'm here for. I'm I'm all about the mom game. I'm not even kidding. I'm probably going to hire some moms to just be analysts. I, they don't need to know anything. It's not a bad idea. I have a friend who did it. I, I was joking about this. My buddy's like, you know, I actually did that, right? And I was like, what? And he said he went and when he was starting, he didn't have a whole lot of budget. He's now a huge fund. But he said, I hired a bunch of moms that had just had kids and they wanted to work like half time and do something. And so I hired them to do research on consumer products. And he's like, he's like, I can't pay you that much. But what I can do is like any consumer product you're vetting, uh, I'll pay you, you know, what I can. And then I'll also buy all those products and you can keep all the products. You just got to tell me how they are. There you go. And he had like the mom mafia and his consumer book just like crushed it. So I'm like, I might steal that.
0: Yeah. The scuttlebutt machine.
1: I mean, you know, not a better scuttlebutt machine than, uh, than that, that I've seen.
0: No, sir. All right, man. Well, take care of yourself. And I really appreciate you doing this and, uh, congrats on the victories this week. I look forward to many more to come. I have a feeling this is just the beginning.
1: Thanks, man. I appreciate it.